Hey, this is Matt Markin, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Adventures in Advising podcast. Thank you so much for listening in and subscribing to this podcast. Each episode, we strive to bring together the global academic advising community by sharing knowledge, best practices, and of course, advising stories. Make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Advising Podcast, and now on YouTube at Adventures in Advising. Without further ado, here's the latest episode, and as always, keep advising. Hello and welcome to episode 36 of Adventures in Advising. Yes, and welcome to June and happy Pride Month, everyone. Thanks to Dion Barton from the University of Birmingham for the shout out for Adventures in Advising on Twitter. We appreciate your support. And thanks also to Olivia Miller, who's an academic advisor at the University of Kansas and said her favorite quote from our last episode was, it's okay if you learn slow as long as you keep going. Thanks for sharing, Olivia. And also thanks to Racer Fan Forever, who posted on Apple Podcasts. Adventures in Advising is truly a must-listen to, regardless to your role in advising and student success. Tips for growth, power of connection, and a familiarity of colleagues that you would like to see more often. Matt and Colm shine as they lead our advising connections to each other and to our impacts with students. Thank you so much for that comment. And also thank you to everyone who filled out our survey. We had a total of 42 entries into our drawing. Some comments from the survey you were wanting more administrators on. So today we have Dr. Karen Sullivan-Vance from the Nakata Executive Office. You also wanted more on social media and engagement. So we actually brought in Miguel Jaramillo, who is a choir director and has developed his social media presence with TikTok. And you also commented on wanting more on study abroad and advisor to student mentorship. So we have James Alford from Columbia College Chicago. So a really awesome episode today. But before we jump into the first interview, let's do the first of the three drawings of our Sharing Stories t-shirts. And so let's go ahead and get everything ready here. I'm going to put this up to the mic, a little ASMR action here. And let's draw one. And it looks like our first winner is Susan Scott. So Susan, we will be in contact with you. And you won our Adventures in Advising Sharing Stories t-shirt. Congrats. Now let's jump into Karen's interview. Dr. Karen Sullivan-Vance serves as the Associate Director for Strategic Program Development in the Executive Office for NACADA, the Global Community for Academic Advising. Prior to coming to the NACADA Executive Office, Karen served as the Associate Vice Provost for Student Success at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Prior to that, she was the Director of Academic Advising and Learning Center at Western Oregon University and was an academic advisor in the College of Liberal Arts and the College of Education at Oregon State University. Karen has been active in Nakata, serving in a variety of leadership positions, including the Board of Directors, Chair of the International Conference Advisory Board, Chair of the Global Initiatives Committee, and Chair of Region 8. She serves as a consultant and speaker for Nakata's Academic Advising Consultants and Speakers Services. She presents regionally, nationally, and internationally on topics related to academic advising, first-generation students, and student success. Karen is a proud first-generation college graduate. She earned her bachelor's in English literature from the University of Puget Sound, her master's in college student services administration from Oregon State University, and her doctorate in educational leadership at Portland State University, where her dissertation focused on foster youth assessing higher education through community college. Karen, welcome to the podcast. Welcome, Matt and Colm. Great to be here. 
We are delighted to be chatting to you today, Karen. And Matt has outlined, you know, a very distinguished uh, bio there. I suppose, you know, that that kind of talks to the the what you've done, and that there is lots of that which we'll delve into. But we always like to to start these in um, to talk to you, I suppose, about how, you know your path into higher ed and, and how you came to be where you are today. Was it something that you always wanted to to work in the the field of higher ed, or how did you you find yourself uh, where you are today, Karen? Thanks, Colm. It was, I was your typical undecided student that had no idea what I wanted to major in. And so to give you some backstory, I was first generation student. I come from a working class, blue collar background. Uh, My father was in the military. Uh, My mother was from London. They met when my dad was overseas. Uh, I was born overseas. I spent most of my childhood in England. And I didn't have anybody in my life who'd been to university, except that I knew that I wanted to go. I wanted, I remember my dad, after he got out of the military, he was a letter carrier. He was a postman. And I remember him coming home when I was in high school, uh, just exhausted because he was carrying a 65 pound pack and saying to me, you know, it's a lot easier to earn your living sitting at a desk than it is on your feet all day. And that really stuck with me that, you know, that, uh, neither of my parents had had opportunities. So my, my father grew up very poor in Mississippi. My American grandfather was illiterate. Uh, my mother was a child of World War II. She was evacuated from London uh, during the war, and so her education was cut off. So there were very bright people that just didn't have the opportunities to go to school. And they fostered education in me. They, they talked about how important education was. They were um, self-taught learners. Uh, they've constantly read. There was always discussions at the dinner table. And so I knew I wanted to, to go to university. I just didn't know what happened when you got there, or what happened when you got out. And so I was accepted into the University of Puget Sound, um, always a logger, go loggers. And it was a great experience. It was a very intellectually demanding institution. But I did not have this was this was years ago. This was in the 80s. There really wasn't academic advising. My my faculty advisor was a wonderful woman, uh, but she, what she did for me was more get me into closed classes. It was very transactional. It was all about scheduling. There were never conversations about what are you going to do after graduation. And so like most first-generation students or many first-generation students, I was very linear. Like, what can I major in that will lead to a job? So I had a facility for languages. So I first thought about um, studying languages and doing translations, but I realized I didn't have, I loved language, but I didn't have a passion for it for a career. And then I thought I would do business and I took microeconomics, which to this day is still the worst grade I've ever had in my life. I passed, but just barely. Um, I'll own it. It was a D. It was the worst grade I ever got. Uh, And I realized that uh, business was probably not going to be my route. And so then I thought I was approaching my junior year. You have to make a decision. You have to commit to something. So I was going to be a teacher. And I spent two days in teacher ed and thought, what am I going to, yeah, I'm going to be five years older than the students I'm teaching. What am I going to tell them? I have nothing to share with them. And I can remember calling my dad on the phone crying, like, what am I going to do? And this was the one of the best gifts my parents ever gave me. My dad said, study what you love and worry about the job later. 
Uh, and he asked me, what do you love? And I said, well, I love literature, but you can't get a job in that. <laughs> no one's going to pay you to, to read a book. And so he, um, so I ended up studying literature and I um, focused on Victorian Edwardian literature. I minored in French and I got out and ironically, my first job was in the business world. I worked for a seafood consulting firm in Seattle and uh, it just didn't fill something within me. And um, about two years later, I got the opportunity to be an admissions counselor at, uh, at a college, a small private college. And I loved it. I did that for five years, was on the road constantly. Uh, and it was great. You know, Hawaii was one of my territories. So you can't really complain when you're, you know, you're going, I'm going to Hawaii to work. It, it doesn't, nobody feels sorry for you. Uh, and especially in November in the Pacific Northwest, there's no sympathy for you at that point. But I did that for about five years and kind of burned out being on the road so much. And uh, ended up moving um, to Pennsylvania was working at a, a two-year institution uh, with non-traditional students, so adult students, and ended up doing advising on the side. So I had part-time students who nobody was advising. And I knew nothing about advising, but I had the checklist. <laughs> and so I was, again, it was very transactional. And I did that for a few years, and then I moved to uh, Oregon, and I got a job in the College of Liberal Arts at Oregon State University. And that's when it just kind of like, like this is the best thing ever. This is my passion. I love advising. Um, and that's how I got connected into Nakata. That's great advice that you were given in terms of like study what you love and then worry about the job later. But I can see how that can also scare people at the same time. Well, you don't want me thinking about that. It's like, well, you'll get to it when you get to it. But you need to find what you're passionate about and, and study that. And I feel like this is always a question I think we we should be asking when we're at conferences or whatnot. Usually we ask, where do you work? What do you do? But I think if we ask that question, how'd you get into advising? What's your path? You find out so much more. And I think I've learned more about you in this one question right now than the whole time that I've known you. So Absolutely, Matt. And I think also there's also a generational aspect because yeah. I'm older than both of you. And so when I came into advising, what you found in advising at that time was you found people who just kind of fallen into it mm -hmm. or you had, um, you know, a faculty member that was just sort of doing it on the side. It was not like a defined career path that it is now where you have students who uh, in their undergraduate are already identifying. I want to go get a master's degree and I want to become an academic advisor. I mean, mine was I just sort of fell into it. And then when I was at Oregon State, I realized that uh, employees coming up all had master's degrees and I was going to have to get, I was going to have to challenge myself and get a master's degree and move up. And so that's what I did. I did my master's while I was there. And so one of the things you mentioned is, you know, being part of Nakata. And when you accepted the your current position at Nakata, you had wrote on social media that you were thrilled to be joining the incredible team at the EO but also the opportunity to serve an association which has had such a positive impact on your life and that it was kind of like a new chapter. So I guess from that, how has your first year gone so far with the EO and how has Nakata had a positive impact on your life? So I think I have to answer the last part first. So uh, when I was at Oregon State, there there was not, this was, this was you know, we're talking two decades ago. There was not a lot of, of training and development uh, for advisors, and that has certainly changed over the years. Very robust now. And I um, got connected to Nakata, and it was just like this, this incredible 
opportunity. It was this incredible feeling of community. There were other people who felt passionate about supporting students and helping students. I wanted to give students the advice that I didn't get. You know, when I think about being a first generation student, uh, for me, you know, back in the day, nobody talked about it. Nobody even labeled Like I didn't know there was a label for it. I didn't know there was a name for it. And what it felt like was that everybody had a playbook that I didn't have. Like people knew things that I didn't know. And so I often think about if I had known some of the information I learned later in life, how would that have changed my trajectory uh, in life? And maybe it wouldn't have taken me 16 years to go and get a master's degree uh, between bachelor's and master's. Uh, so I think what it did is it opened up the sense of community. It provided me with opportunities for training and development and to really push myself about there are, you know, like I can write and I can publish and I can do presentations and I can learn from other people. And I can, you know, the great thing about Nakata is the sharing. Advisors are so willing to share what they're doing with each other. And so I can take that back to my institution and maybe we can implement that. So it provided me all of those, really that foundation to grow and learn and develop as an advisor. And then as I started getting involved in leadership opportunities, it really provided um, the leadership training that I hadn't had. So it was giving me opportunities as a frontline advisor to develop leadership, which helped me grow and develop and eventually become an associate vice provost. And so I attribute that back to Nakata. Um, how has my first year been? It's been, um, it's been incredible. Uh, it's been a bit of a roller coaster. Uh, it was, I was very sad uh, to leave uh, Tennessee Knoxville because I loved the team of people I worked with. They were incredible. But Nakata had always been a goal for me. It had always been, not really a goal, it had been a dream. It was something where I thought, you know, I'd love to work for Nakata, but I don't know that my life will sort of, you know, that the, the stars will align in the right way to allow that to happen. And it happened last spring, you know, the, the job came open uh, last spring and I thought, this may be my only opportunity and uh, I really want to be able to give back. And I think that was important to me. There were a lot of individuals as I was coming up, um, mentors who like Nancy King and Jane Drake and Susan Campbell, Eric White and Charlie Nutt, of course, uh, who really supported uh, my growth and development. And I thought this was an opportunity for me to give back to that next generation of advisors in supporting them. So um, it's been the stars aligned. My house in Tennessee sold in less than a day. Um, moved in the middle of a pandemic, which uh, was a bizarre situation to do. Uh, it's really strange staying at hotels where nobody's at. Uh, and then uh, I managed to get COVID in November. So it, uh, it's been a strange first year, but it's also been incredible just to see, I think, the membership um, adapt to see the conferences we've been able to put online and have them be virtual to make sure that people are, are getting those opportunities to continue their development. Um, and it's been great to work with the EO staff. Uh, you know, I've worked with them for years as a member, so to have that opportunity to work with them as colleagues has just been fantastic. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. 
Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with the admissions game wherever you podcast. Um, I suppose one of the the things that I, was interesting, because you, you mentioned that about being an admissions counselor and being on the road. And that has served you well, I think, in, in in many different roles because you have been out on the road, I suppose, spreading um, the the word about Nakata. I know that you have been very involved with UCAT, uh, even stepping in at one point to give the the keynote at the at the last moment. So I'd like to to know about about that, but also I suppose just about that that time because you've been, I believe, in China as well, and I'm sure other locations. So just about that experience of, of kind of traveling, about meeting with, um, you know, academic advisors, personal tutors, or those involved in supporting students around the world. What has that experience been like, Karen? So, Colm, it's been, it's been incredible, I think, to, to get to meet members like you um, who are in different parts of the world who are focused on student success and about supporting students. And those conversations about, you know, whether we call it personal tutoring or academic advising or something else. It's that that synergy, those connections we have, and really being able to share with each other uh, what we're learning. I will, the, the UCAT, sir, UCAT has been incredible. I mean, Penny Robinson, who is the founder of UCAT, just really, you have to have somebody who is really passionate to be able to start an association. And she managed to do that. It's, it's now under the, the, the great direction of David Gray, uh, and you are right about the the, the conference presentation. Um, it was, I believe, it was Sheffield. It was the first one. Uh, the the speaker who was supposed to be coming had an issue. Uh, I think a family member was ill, if I remember correctly. And so, jokingly at dinner, they mentioned you might have to give the keynote because I had just given a keynote in Dubai for Nakata's international conference. And so we were all sort of joking about it. I didn't really think it was serious. I went to bed. I got up the next morning at like 10 past eight. They're like, okay, yeah, you're on um, at nine. And, and so there I am trying to change some of my PowerPoint slides, trying to get ready. And um, I remember walking up on the stage and, uh, you know, in the U.S. typically when you do a keynote, you do the keynote, people clap and you walk off the stage. And as I was walking up, um, it, you know, Penny was introducing me and she suddenly said, oh, and I'm sure Karen would be happy to answer questions at the end of this. And I can, all I could think of was like, what, 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 wait, what? And so, so it was a, uh, was a, it was a great experience. It was fun. Um, Charlie was in the back row giving me a thumbs up and, uh, it, it was just a, you know, it was an opportunity to be able to step in and help you cat. Uh, and maybe sometime down the road, they'll invite me back, uh, when I can actually prepare a talk specifically for them. But uh, that was a great experience. It's been phenomenal to see their growth and development um, in the last few years. It's just fantastic. And it speaks to the need that exists there. Um, China China was right before uh, we all went into pandemic. So it was in the November of 2019. And so Wendy Troxell and I uh, were invited to go to China and uh, Tsinghua University was doing uh, the first advising conference and it was fantastic. They had, you know, created um, notebooks for people. We had interpreters. That was a, that was a new experience of 
saying a sentence and waiting for the interpreter um, to, to repeat after you. But it was a phenomenal experience. Uh, I will say it was the first time in my life, though, that I did get laryngitis. So after doing four presentations one day, uh, the next day I had very little voice. So fortunately, I had a microphone and kind of squeaked my way uh, through it. But it was a, it was a great experience. Uh, Singwa were incredible hosts. Uh, and it was fantastic to just talk to their advisors because advising is really starting to come into its own. Uh, in China. And so it's really starting to grow and develop. Yeah. Talk about ad adapting on the fly to do a keynote. <laughs> hey, you just woke up, but yeah, you really do need to do that keynote. So yes, you may have thought it was a joke, but I'm sure the other people that were mentioned it the night before, they were actually serious about it. I know. I, I probably, that may have been one moment where I didn't completely read the room right, uh, you know, <laughs> where I thought they, because I really did think that the speaker would be able to make it. Um, but I think, again, that that speaks to advisors. You know, uh, one of my colleagues years ago talked about advisors being great um, extemporaneous speakers, because when you think about students coming in, they'll come in to see you and, and you know, it's written down like they've got a question about a course. But then as you start having a conversation with them, all sorts of other things come out from it and you've got to react to it. So fortunately, I had a keynote in my pocket, which was which was beneficial. So maybe the moral of that story is always have a prepared keynote or talk ready to go. Well, actually, that's that's a really good point. So there's a, a, actually a public speaker. Uh, he's actually a world champion of public speaking through Toastmasters from, I think, 1999, uh, Craig Valentine. And he always goes with, with, the, with the line of don't get ready, stay ready. That's a good one. That's a good one. Because... When he won the the championship, he's in the airport going home and he's got like this big trophy and a person comes up to him and reads the, the writing on the trophy and it's like, oh, world champion of public speaking, say some things. And that's kind of where he it kind of came up with that, 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 that line where it's like, you know, you really have to be ready on the fly with whatever role that, that you're in. But you mentioned presenting in in China. And that was three dozen universities that, that were part of that conference. And I think Dr. Wendy Troxell said that both of you together had presented like 12 sessions at that conference. So I guess from that, how did that partnership come about with with presenting at that conference at China? And how do things look now? I mean, now that we've, you know, we've gone through, this, we're kind of still in this pandemic, but is that partnership still forged with, with China? It is, Matt, and I think um, I think if anything, we've our our partnerships have just continued to grow and get stronger in the pandemic. We you know we've all been in some regards we've been forced to stop in terms of travel and, and going places, but we've had the connections um, online where we can meet with people. Um, I know you know my first connection with um, uh, Yisi from Tsinghua was at one of the international conferences. Like she came to it, she wanted to learn and she wanted to take that back. And then uh, the next year, Yisi and her, her um, supervisor, Ray, came uh, and they've been to all the international conferences. And then um, Harriet has come. They, they actually received the very first in Hasselt, the very first Best of International um, a few years ago for their presentation. And they're doing some incredible work. They've done some great research where they've really looked at, you know, how students are um, selecting courses and majors and have done some really incredible original research around that. Uh, and so that has just continued as, as um, we've all gotten to know them. They've been at conferences. 
they have started participating more in NACADA. So I know Yisi has served on the Global Initiatives Committee. Harriet is on it now. Uh, so there's just been, I think those those ties just keep strengthening as we go along. And I suppose um, then like in, in terms of, um, you know, that the way in which we've talked about advising around the world and the way in which, you know, people are invested in, in student success. And we you mentioned earlier, um, I suppose, in relation to your own benefits from NACADA about professional development, but I know it's something that you have spoken on previously. And I suppose when we get to a point where, you know, the pandemic is still at different stages around the world, but we're facing now in towards a new academic year, whatever that looks like for different people around the world. But I suppose from your experience, Karen, and drawing both in terms of staff development, but also, you know, student helping students to negotiate the world we're in, what are you what are your thoughts or advice that you might offer to, to listeners as we kind of begin the a summer stage where we're planning for the next academic year? So I, I think there's a couple of things, Colin. I mean, first I would I would speak to um, institutional administrators and, and I'm not talking specifically advising directors, I'm talking higher up provosts, presidents, chancellors. Um, I, I think it's really important to recognize the work that academic ad- advisors have done through this pandemic. Uh, as as everyone um, changed swiftly last year uh, and and went to online, advisors suddenly found themselves at the forefront. Uh, so many so many other aspects um, of collegiate life were were gone, and advisors were really the ones who were having conversations with students, who were trying to help them navigate and change, and they were also helping faculty members as well uh, in that. And so I think. Uh, They've done such a tremendous job in supporting students through this and supporting students through difficult times. Like, do students have access to laptops? Do they have access to Wi-Fi hotspots? Do they, you know, when they go home, what is that like? Is there, is there space for them at home? You know, what if, what if they need to be out working? Uh, and even when you think about the advisor's experience, you know, for a lot of them, um, some of them had their, their partners or spouses were essential workers. So they're worrying about them, they're trying to support their students, and they've got their children at home and they're trying to homeschool them. I mean, it's the, you know, the balancing act that academic advisors have done in this past year has been incredible. Um, And so I think that, uh, you know, it was wonderful for the Global Advising Week to see institutions, what institutions were doing to, to say thank you to advisors for that. Um, And I think as we move into this new year, and you you said it beautifully about the fact that, you know, the world's going to be at all different stages. So maybe not every institution is going to be open. So how do we continue to support advisors who may be working remotely? Because they're the ones who are supporting students. So how do we help them? What, what um, you know, what are ways that we can look to support them? And I think part of it is that piece about um, recognizing that you can't do everything. And that you need to, in the process of something like this, take care of yourself. Um, there are a lot of people who have lost loved ones over the past year. It's been a devastating pandemic financially for people. It's been, you know, devastating in terms of health. You know, for for young, I have a niece who's 13. She spent the last year and a half not in school at a, at a time that's a very social time in your life when you're trying to develop uh, and trying to learn on, you know, on a laptop. And so I think giving everybody a little grace as we move forward, 
but trying to take moments where you're taking care of yourself and where you are, you know, whatever that is for you. Um, I have a dog and uh, one of the great benefits of having a dog is they live in the moment. You know, she has to go outside, which means I could literally sit in front of the computer for hours on end and not go anywhere, but she has to go outside. So it forces me to be in the moment, forces me to go out in nature, forces me to exercise. Uh, and so I think making sure that you're doing things for yourself that are good and healthy, recognizing you can't solve all the problems. Um, and, I, and I think the other thing, too, is that advisors frequently are the first people that can see an issue and that, you know, that they can bring that up uh, to administrations and let them know, like, you know, we're seeing students who need X, Y or Z. You know, what kind of supports can we do? Yeah, exactly. Like you said, but with with advisors, I mean. The student is the first person to contact the advisor. The advisor then can bring that up to their boss or to the higher ups if there's some sort of issue. And then hopefully there can be some type of solution to it. But everything that you talked about was regarding the student and like what's the student's experience. And back mm -hmm. in 2018, uh, Brett McFarlane had done a keynote for a UCAT conference in England. And he had said something that had an impact enough for you to post about it where the quote was, how does a student experience your university? And I know that's from like three years ago, so not sure if you remember all the context that went with that quote. But what comes to mind when you hear that kind of question of how does a student experience your university? And do you think that's something as institutions or departments or as you know, frontline staff, that that's something that we sometimes forget to ask? Mm -hmm. I, I think you're right. I think we do forget to ask that. And, and also even thinking about from advisor wellness, like how, does, how, does, how do your staff experience your institution? Do they do they feel cared for? Do they feel supported in what they're doing? Do they have the tools to be able to to do what they're doing? Um, but yeah, I think it's I think it comes back to when you think about the student experience. We want we know that um, there are going to be times where there can be disequilibrium when a student's making a transition. So just think about this freshman class coming in. They have spent the last year and a half, most of them, learning remotely. So all of those last high points of of being in high school so the you know prom and football games and and homecoming and uh you know different events that just sort of kind of highlight and bookend your um you know your your k-12 through experience uh they haven't had that you know they've had drive-by graduations <laughs> they've had you know different you know people have adapted as well as they can now they're coming into the institution and in some cases they're going to be there their, their families may still be worried about their wellness and their health. But how do we help them adjust? How do we help them adjust to going from being, I'm on a computer by myself seeing my classmates to suddenly I'm in a classroom that may have 100 people in it or 200 people or a 600 person lecture hall. And so how do we help them adjust to that? And then how do we help them adjust to uh, living in the residence halls? How do we get them engaged? I think that's you know, it's how are they experiencing your university? Do they do they feel connected? Do they feel that they matter? You know, I love I love Schlossberg, love a little matter versus marginality, but it's so true. Do students feel that they are important? Because it's it's easy for students to feel like a number, um, and it's so important. We know. I mean, there's so much research about the need for students to connect with someone. And that could be somebody in the lunch line at the cafeteria 
who just says to you, Colm, how'd you do on your test today? You know, it's somebody who just knows you and knows something about you and connects. So really, you know, I think one of the things um, I used to frequently do uh, when I um, was a frontline advisor and then when I was a director and an administrator is I would always go sit where the students at. I wanted to see what was the perspective. So what was the, the perspective? Like I never would have a student sit across the desk from me in my office. It was always a round table because, you know, the desk can can in some cases be sort of hierarchical, like I'm in charge. Uh, and so the desk was much more um, convivial and, and uh, I think community focused, but also just to go across campus and to look at it through the eyes of your students. It was very beneficial when I did my doctorate. I, it was fascinating. So I can remember standing in line. Uh, I was paying a, paying a bill and there was somebody behind the counter and they were having a bad day and they were taking it out on a student. And it was all I could do to stop myself from saying, you need to go take a break. But I didn't work there. <laughs> so I did, I, that was probably a little bit too intrusive. But it's, it's thinking about like that person was frustrated. They needed to come off the front line for a few minutes and take care of themselves. Um, and then that student's experience at that moment was really negative. So thinking about like how, you know, putting yourself in the, in the shoes of your students and going through, you know, like sit through orientation. What is that like for your students? Um, you know, just, just trying to understand what your students, how they're experiencing your institution and talking with them, talking with them. I love a focus group. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, I think your your passion for the student experience clearly shines through there. And I think there's some really nice um, things that listeners can take away. I suppose building on that, because you have held a number of um, leadership positions and I also won an award for your passion and creativity in leadership. Uh, I, I'm interested in, you know, hearing a little more on, on your thoughts on, on leadership, because it obviously is really important that students have that that sense of belonging, the sense that they they matter. But you know, for for staff and for advisors, that's really important as well. So, just interested in in hearing your approach and and to leadership, Karen. Well, Colin, I think you know when I think about leadership, I I always think about when I was a when I was a frontline advisor, and I would look at leaders like the the people who I aspired to be. And I, I think in life, you need to have two types of mentors. Mentors who are at your level that you're kind of pushing each other along. And then your aspirational mentors, the people you aspire to be like. And uh, I would look at things and I would often think like, that's not the way I want to handle it. That's not how I want to do it. That's what can I learn from that experience that later on I can use. And so when it came to leadership, I think part of it is um, I am fascinated by people's stories. I'm a qualitative uh, narrative data person. I love people's stories. I can be, I'm happy to sit on a plane and chat with somebody and find out their life story. I love stories and I love student stories, but I also love the staff stories too. What are their experiences? And recognizing that as you, as you go through life, there are times, you know, you talk, uh, Lee Neffelkamp sort of seasons of faculty life where she talks about there are times where you are fully engaged and then there may be times where you have to pull back a bit because of other things happening in your life and sort of giving yourself that grace to be able to do that and how important that is. So I always think about leadership is not about um, it's not about you. It's about what can you do for the people um, who are part of your team and also 
other teams around campus because it's not, you can't exist in a silo. You have to work with uh, folks across campus. So it's always like, how can I help somebody else? What can I do to help them get what they're trying to get done? Are there ways that as a team we can come together? So I've always liked a very democratic approach. I want to hear everybody's points of view because I, I think I recognized early on that if you hear differing points of view, you're going to come up with something better than if you just are listening to yourself and doing what you think is right. If you get differing points of view, you can create something much better from that. Um, so, you know, the other thing, too, I think in leadership and, and in working with different teams is just recognizing that people have lives outside of the office. And so, uh, you know, years ago, uh, when I worked at Western, we used to do like a, a, a December dinner that we would do. And, and at that time, everybody on staff, um, you know, their kids were grown. And so we would go to a nice restaurant. And then I suddenly had, you know, have change and turnover. And I suddenly had younger staff and they were having children. And so we kind of adapted things to have, you know, we brought Santa in and we had toys for the kids and we did things. And so some of it is just recognizing that people have a life outside the office and respecting that and, you know, letting people know that they're Voices are heard. Their voices are valued. That your door is open to them. Uh, one of my other philosophies is that if I am on campus, um, I am fair game. My door is open. It, there's very few times you would ever find my door closed, and that would usually be if I was meeting with a student on something because you want people to be able to come in and share with you um, and talk things through. So I think when I think of leadership, I think about humility. I think about serving. Um, what can I do for the team? How can I help them? How can I support them in their goals, whether they're professional or personal goals that they have? All great tips. And you mentioned stories, and this is getting posted in June, and Charlie Nutt's retiring. Do you have any stories that you could share about Charlie? I do. I have a ton of stories. I'm sure some of them he would not uh, want me to share. Uh, they are funny. So maybe after he's retired, we'll do a repeat and uh, and do that. But, you know, I told you the one about um, him sitting in the back row at UCAT giving me the thumbs up, which was appreciated. But, you know, when I think about Charlie, I think about uh, a leader who is very humble, um, who works from a place of humility and care. He's always focused on the members. It's never about Charlie, you know, and, and sometimes you will come across somebody who is like they want to be the center uh, star attraction. And that's never Charlie. He wants the members to be the star attractions uh, and that he cares. I think so much behind the scenes what people don't know. Uh, so I can remember I'm going to give you two examples and then I'll give you a, a funny story about him. But, uh, you know, I told you I had COVID in November. So I've just moved here, haven't really made any connections beyond the EO because I'm working from home and, you, you know, you can't at this time. And I uh, got COVID and was very ill. And uh, Charlie uh, was, uh, you know, great boss, was checking in daily with me, but he went beyond that. There got a point where I was so ill, you know, I could barely get up. And Charlie was taking my dog for a walk. So if you can imagine, he's handling you know, association business, talking to members all around the world, and he's walking my dog in November. Um, and just, I mean, that's just, to me, that's such a great, you know, he was doing, he was getting groceries for me and leaving them on the doorstep. And, you know, just that sort of that, that care that he has. Um, and I know he's done that, you know, um, when he finds out about a member, if they're, you know, have a family member who's ill and he's calling them, what can we do? How can we support you? Um, but, 
one of the things I do remember, this is many years ago at Region 8, was not a very big region at that time. So we had maybe about 175, 200 people at a conference in Portland, and Charlie was there for it. And as you know, Charlie, he's very engaging. He's very dynamic when he talks. He's using his hands. And he was walking down a hotel hallway with two brand new members. So, you know, we were excited. These were new folks. And he's totally engaged with them. And, you know, he's got his cup of coffee. So he's revved up on caffeine. And he walks into a pillar and tosses the coffee all over the new members. And, uh, you know, and I will say, you know, my response was probably not the best response. I was like, Charlie, we can't kill off our members. Um, this is not good. Um, but he, he at the, uh, at the at, uh, a presentation later in the day when everybody was there, he called them up on the stage. He told people the story and he gave them each a gift um, and apologized uh, for that. But that's just, that's just Charlie. That's who he is. He can laugh at himself. Um, but he does get so involved, he just forgets everything around him. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. I think absolutely. And firstly, the, the story about like just how caring and compassionate he is and, the, and then the, the, the Charlie Nutt story. So thank you for sharing that. And I suppose I'm going to piggyback on that a little bit because um, by the time this gets posted, we will be in the run up to the, um, the international conference. Uh, I'm in, and you, you have had, uh, you know, the opportunity to, to be at, um, some of the, the international conferences. That's when I first met you. I suppose interested in, uh, you know, any, any, uh, stories from, um, from international conferences past as we look forward, uh, to, to this year's kind of virtual event. Are you talking Charlie stories or no? I did not. It doesn't have to be, but uh, Karen Sullivan Van stories. Um, oh, now you're going to make me try and jog my memory. Uh, I would say, you know, I've been I've been to all of the international ones, with the exception of Qatar. Uh, even as far back as 2007, when we had the very first joint one with the Higher Ed Association in in the UK. Um, I'm, I can remember. I won't say the city, but it's a place that's near and dear to my heart. It's a country near and dear to my heart. So you'll be able to figure that out. Uh, but I can remember it was so, I was so cold. Uh, and it was, it was March. It was not, we managed to have snow, sunshine, uh, and rain all in the same day. I was so cold that I actually had to borrow um, a scarf from Oscar's wife, Bertine. Uh, to stay warm because it was so cold uh, inside, inside, not outside. It was so cold. Uh, so I realized at that point that, you know, I probably wasn't as hardy as I thought I was. Um, but we've had a lot of we've had a lot of fun looking at different sites, you know, back in the day, um, different locations. We almost missed a train um, in in uh, Birmingham uh, and 
basically we're running through the train station. So if you can envision Charlie, Rhonda, myself, I think there was somebody else with this as we're all sort of like running through a train station to try and catch a train, um, trundling our luggage. Uh, and so yeah. but there's, there's been some fun. I mean, every, you know, Colin, what's great is that every international conference has its own um, vibe and feeling to it. And, you know, Dublin was fantastic. You know, it was such a wonderful event. We had so much fun uh, at it. It was, there was a lot of learning. It was really cool. Um, you know, Sheffield was great. Um, Hasselt was great. And the very first one in Maastricht really sort of set the tone for that chance to just get to talk to other people. You know, that's the one thing I would say is, is really nice about the international conference. It's smaller. And so people are really engaging and not that they're not engaging at annual, they are, but it's that opportunity to really talk to people around the world about, you know, how are, how are you handling academic advising? How are you handling the pandemic right now? What are you doing differently? Um, how are you changing uh, what you do? Yeah, it's definitely a, a different dynamic. And I think it's, you get a little bit more personal, it's a little more intimate at, at those international conferences. And I'm just trying to imagine all of you running at, to, at the train station. The only thing that comes to mind is Home Alone 2, where the family's running in the airport to try to catch the plane, and they leave poor Macaulay Culkin all by himself. So, Well, it was, it was a little bit of um, Lord of the Flies in terms of every person for themselves <laughs> as we were trying. And I, and I, uh, I forget the, I forget uh, the member's name. Um, he's retired from advising now, but he was literally chucking our luggage on as the train was moving. And, uh, and if you, and if you know, Charlie, you know, Charlie is, um, beautiful fashion sense and his love of shoes. And Charlie and I share a love of shoes for the look of shoes, not always for the comfort of shoes. So um, I think I, if I also remember we were not wearing very comfortable shoes at that time. And if anyone listening has any questions or wants to get in contact, how can they reach out to you? So just ksvance at ksu.edu, or they can go on the Nakata website and look under the executive office. But, you know, it's, I think the great thing is, is we have new advisors coming into the field and we have mid-level advisors and administrators. There's always ways that you can get involved and there's always, and you can do it for, you want to learn something, you want to take something back to your campus, you want to work on your own personal and professional development. There's just so many great ways you can get involved. And not to not to stop yourself, not to limit yourself. You know, I think that you know one of the very first things I ever did was I wrote a book review, and it, because that whole thing about like ooh, writing a book or writing a chapter it just seems a little bit overwhelming. But a book review, you know, 450 words, I could handle that. Um, or you do a presentation, and then you move on and you start doing more presentations. So there's so many great ways you can serve on committees, and get involved with the advising communities. There's just great ways that you can get involved. And, and everyone, you know, I want people to feel welcome and I want them to feel connected to Nakata because um, there's so much good work that is being done around the globe. And if we share with each other what we're doing, that just benefits students. And at the end of the day, it comes back to the students. You know, how do we help our students? And especially right now, how do we help this generation of students who have had this very disruptive event happen um, and in many cases has been incredibly personal in terms of their own sacrifice and their own experiences and losses. 
So how do we support them and support them? And then how do we support our advisors as well? I think you have done a wonderful job of, of highlighting the sense of community that exists within the CADA, the, the fun that takes place, but also the learning. And I think the, there's been so much for listeners to take away from this interview, both from learning a little bit about you. And, and I think that that you know humanizing that story hearing about how you found your way into higher ed was really lovely uh, leading on to all your insights into leadership and how to best you know help our, our students so Karen thank you very much for taking the time to chat to myself and Matt today thank you Colm and Matt for this opportunity it's great to see you both and uh, thank you to everyone who listens and keep on advising keep on out there advising and know that we support you and we're here to help you I thought Karen's story about her route into higher ed was fascinating, as well as her insights from her international travel and her thoughts on supporting students. Yes, thank you again, Karen. And before we get to Miguel's interview, let's do drawing number two of our Sharing Stories t-shirts. So here we go. Let's go and get one. Are you going to be the lucky one? Let's see. And it's actually our good buddy, Quentin Alexander. Quentin. You won a Sharing Stories t-shirt. Congrats. We'll be in touch with you. And now let's go on to Miguel Jaramillo from Rio Rancho Public Schools. Our guest right now is Miguel Jaramillo. Miguel is a middle school choir director in the state of New Mexico. He enjoys teaching and playing classical guitar and earned a dual degree in music education and music performance from the University of New Mexico in 2014. Miguel has been teaching choir and guitar in public schools for the last six years. In 2019, Miguel received the New and Emerging Music Teacher of the Year Award from the New Mexico Music Education Association. He recently became a TikTok influencer with his interactive rhythm challenges. The challenges have reached many corners of the world, including North America, Northern Europe, South America, the Middle East, and the Philippines. Miguel's teaching philosophy is simply to connect with students and to provide a fun learning environment because he believes that students learn best through play. Miguel, how are you? Welcome to the Vegetarian Advising Podcast. Great, Matt. Thanks for having me. Now, some listeners might be thinking, did Matt read Miguel's bio and say that he's a middle school choir teacher? What does this have to do with academic advising? And well, I firmly believe we learn from everybody. And if anything, the general field we're both in is education. But no matter the field, we can always connect and tie things together. And one of the topics listeners who filled out our survey last month indicated they wanted more of was technology, and engaging students. So as mentioned in Miguel's bio, we're going to talk about social media and TikTok, and hopefully you can pull some tips and tricks from for engaging your students through social media. So Miguel, your teaching philosophy is to connect with students and to provide a fun learning environment. Is this something you've been doing all along? And how has this worked out for you? How has that gone? So I actually did not start out um, in this kind of philosophy. I started out with a philosophy of you are the educator and you have to be like the bigger person. And um, what was the phrase? Like, don't smile until the holidays because they want to know that you're serious about things. And I tried that for my first couple of years and it did not go well. (laughs) I mean, your first few years of teaching are hard in general, but trying to be this like big figure that is not relatable is not always the best approach. And then 
kind of in my third and fourth year when I started trying to really connect with my students, I started to see, okay, I'm doing better now that I'm just meeting them on a more personal level. Like they know who I am. I know who they are and things are going so much better. So one thing I like to do in the beginning of the year is just tell them who I am. I make a slideshow and some people are like, isn't that kind of narcissistic? And I'm like, maybe, but honestly, they know who I am. They know when my birthday is. They know my favorite holiday. They know where I like to get drinks, which is Starbucks. And if that leads to them bringing me Starbucks every day until the end of the school year, which has been happening, I'm okay with it. And they honestly just enjoy doing that. So yeah, I make that slideshow presentation and I think they just get a more, like a better sense of comfort around me because they're like, okay, this is not just a teacher that gives me grades. This is an actual human being that enjoys nerdy things like Marvel movies. And my favorite superhero is Captain America. And they sometimes like give me drawings of Captain America that I still have because I appreciate it so much. So I definitely learned that going from just being a stickler of rules to just connecting with students has been much more beneficial. I enjoy my job so much. Like I can't speak for other people. They probably like go to work, don't get to interact with many people. Whereas I get to interact with fun, goofy kids all day. And like, they're just my people, you know? So I definitely enjoy that. I get to be myself around them, which is like, you could probably just equate it to a dorky nerd. And that's just who I am as a teacher. And my kids enjoy it. They can relate to it. And now you've been teaching for about six years now. So how did you get how did you get into teaching? So my parents have always been in the public education field. Uh, my mom was a teacher for a while, and then she went into IT. And my dad was always he did he was an educational assistant. So I saw that a lot, and it's kind of just always been part of my family. Just being able to help others, teach others. And that's kind of how I got interest in it, I guess you would say. And then when I started um, in high school where we had to think, oh gosh, what are we going to do? Like, what am I supposed to do when I get to college? And for the longest time, I wanted to be an engineer. And it's because I really enjoyed like building Legos and my parents were like, maybe you should be an engineer. I was like, oh, okay, I'll try that. And then when I got into um, my guitar class in high school, I was like, ooh, I love music. This might be something. And then my teacher said, you know, you might consider being a music educator because you have this like natural ability in just helping others. And you really enjoy music. Why not try that? And I was like, oh, that's not a bad idea. So that's kind of what got me into it. And then once I got to college, I was like, yeah, this is definitely what I want to do. So, And so you mentioned college. And so you went to University of New Mexico and you did a, a dual degree 
And so how was your time at University of New Mexico? And did you ever meet with an academic advisor? And how was that experience like? So I originally went for guitar education. And that was the funniest conversation with my advisor. They were like, so just so you know, this is a choral education track. And I was like, okay, I've never been in choir. Are you sure about this? <laughs> and they're like, well, that's the degree. So um, kind of get a test for how it goes and let us know. And I think after the first semester, I was like, I've never done choir. This is not for me. <laughs> but as I got more into it, I was like, okay, I, I can appreciate it. And I'm learning so much from having to do this other kind of field that I wasn't really experienced in. And I look back and I'm like, so thankful that I did stick to it. So originally it was going to be a guitar education degree, but then I also wanted to get the performance degree as well. And the university offered that dual degree. And I did not know what I was getting myself into when I said, yeah, dual degree, that's fine. It was usually anywhere from 18 to 20 credit hours every semester, where normally a normal course load is what, 12 credit hours, 12 to 16. That was that was really hard because I at sometimes had three applied lessons. So I always felt kind of split and my professors were like, are you, are you not practicing enough? And I'm like, I'm honestly trying, but I'm doing voice lessons, guitar lessons, piano lessons, all at the same time. I had to prepare performances for each of those disciplines. So it was... It was so stressful. And I remember having to get, I think it was like Dean approval to be allowed to do the extra coursework. And I'm like, well, I need to, because I want to be able to finish in five years, which it actually took five and a half. <laughs> and um, I just credit, I give, I got to give credit to my academic advisors because they definitely helped me plan this course because there's just so many different courses. And sometimes you don't get to choose the class you need certain semesters. So it was really cool that they could really help me figure out my plan to stay on track and not graduate in like eight years. because <laughs> That's what it felt like it was going to take. Uh, so, yeah, I definitely got to give credit to my advisors for that. Yeah, I think that's a shout out to like all advisors of music majors at any institution. I know for Cal State San Bernardino, where I work, our music department handles all the advising for their music students because it's such a complicated path with, with their classes. And just like you're saying, you know, you were taking about 18 semester units a term. And that's kind of how it is like with our students in, in our music program. And it's so, so much different than a lot of our other majors where traditionally you start off with more of your general ed classes and you kind of sprinkle your major classes in. And then once you get to like your junior and senior year, that's when you're taking majority of your major classes. But with the music majors, it's kind of swapped where it's basically music classes from the very beginning. Right. Yeah. And then uh, not just that, then we have all the like, um, I guess you would call them core classes. So like mm -hmm. just general history classes and science classes and math. Mm -hmm. And I try to get those out of the way as soon as possible. Um, mm -hmm. But sometimes I just couldn't. And like I was a super senior, we called it. And 
still taking like a level one history class. <laughs> just trying to get this done. I just want to graduate. Right, right. <laughs> so now, you know, you've gotten into teaching and I think, you know, over was it the last year or so, you kind of got into social media with, with TikTok, but just social media in general, what, what was your experience with social media? Like were you using it originally more for professional or more personal purposes? So I remember in college, um, in our like teaching practicum classes, they said, always be cautious with your social media as an educator. And um, that just, I mean, we are held to a higher standard in general. Mm-hmm. And um, it's always scary to see other teachers when they post on their own social media, like some of the content they put. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, yeah, it's definitely unfair that we have to be so like guarded and just cautious. Um, but at the same time, it's like, you know, we are like a public figure and what you post is going to be seen and sometimes it can get you in trouble. So just always being cautious is better than trying to fight it. I, I don't want to fight it, honestly. I'm such a rule follower that I'm just like, I'm good. I'll just, I'll just be, I'll just follow the rules. Um, now when it came to TikTok, originally I was definitely in the background. Not many people saw me or followed me. So I posted more just like random things, uh, just trying to see if anything would stick just for fun. And then when I hit my, um, when I got my viral video out, it, the algorithm pushed it to millions of people now, like 2.3 million views. And I was like, oh my gosh, what is going on? And then my students start sending me messages. You're on my for you page. <laughs> like, oh no. Okay. What has gone on? So that's when I was like, okay, whatever this TikTok is going to become, I have to keep it even more strictly educational, which it has. Um, but I would say for any educator, just be just be careful. And um, my students are always like, can I be your friend on like Facebook or Snapchat or Instagram? And I'm like, no, I love my job and I don't want to lose it. Um, and I usually say that because they don't necessarily how, know how to engage on a professional level because they're kids. And sometimes they do funny things and I'm like, yeah, no, I don't want to be like anywhere in that realm with you. Mm -hmm. So I always say, no, when you graduate and turn 18, maybe I'll befriend you. But for now, just send me a message if you need to in like Google Classroom or something. So yeah, I try not to befriend students because I mean, you just need to be careful. Oh, yeah. And that's even like at the college level, even though students are, you know, technically adults 18 or over, usually a lot of students I meet with, I'll tell them like, yeah, if, once you graduate, then go ahead and add me on Facebook. But um, you can interact professionally on LinkedIn. But yeah, any of my personal ones, like once you're not my student, then we can uh, connect through social media. Now, you were mentioning a viral video on TikTok. How did that come about? So, gosh, I remember trying to just post a variety of videos to see if like, Ooh, I could get more followers. That would be cool. And then, um, I remember duetting this video where you had to read a list of numbers 
and put up that number of fingers in time. So like keeping a steady beat and showing the number of fingers. And I was like, that's not hard. Like I teach sight reading to my students. Why is this so difficult for some people? And then I think it was the next morning. (laughs) This is how I feel so humble. I'm like, I'm scooping dog food into their dishes And I'm like, what if I use those rhythm cards I have laying around and like kind of time them to the music and allow people to duet the videos? So I didn't think anything of it. It only took 15 seconds to record the video because that's the wonderful format of TikTok. And I just sent it out and tried to see what would happen. And then I remember one of my good friends from college She was the first person to duet it. And she was like, this is so much fun. And I watched her duet. And it was just so cool to see someone having fun doing that video. And I specifically remember that this was um, a Wednesday back in November because I had meetings lined up all day. And I remember getting a couple notifications on my watch because I still had it set up to do the push notifications. And I kept saying, hey, someone created a duet with you. Someone created a duet with you. I'm like, oh, like this is kind of doing well. That's awesome. I'll check it after my next meeting. And I'm probably exaggerating the number, but (laughs) the next time, I think it was two meetings later, I checked in on TikTok and it had like 20,000 views. And I was like, what? (laughs) What is going on? And like, I've been living with my parents during the pandemic and I, my mom has been working in the same home office with me. I remember telling her like, so you're not going to believe this, but that little video I did this morning already has 20,000 views. And she was like, what? No way. And then she was like, I'm such a happy mother. I want to (laughs) cry. So it just kept going and going, going. And I didn't realize that that's what the algorithm did. It just pushed a video that was um, kind of engaging an audience So I remember just checking in after every meeting after that, and it was like 50,000, then 100,000. And then by the end of the day, I think around 7 o'clock my time, it was at 500,000, and I just was blown away. I had no idea. So I remember the following day, I just made a quick TikTok thanking everyone for like showing their interest in the video and for the (laughs) – I think there were thousands of duets – And um, I remember seeing comments where people were like, wow, he didn't even watch my duet. I'm like, literally have no time. Like I'm teaching right now and I can't possibly watch all of these. Honestly, I wish there was a way to like organize the duets based on videos instead of it just being sequential. So I could like actually go back and watch all of those because there are so many from that first video that I still have not been able to get to. And because you you mentioned a couple of these terms, so in case listeners don't know, so you mentioned duet. And so that's basically, you know, there's a video that maybe a creator has made, and then you're taking that video and um, it appears side by side on the screen and you're interacting somewhat with with that video. And then you also mentioned the For You page and you mentioned the uh, algorithm. So basically the For You page would be something where you're scrolling through various videos that TikTok is kind of pushing to to your account to to watch. And that could be based off maybe some past behavior of what you've looked at before and they're giving you those, those videos or something just totally random. Now, you also mentioned, you know, 
you know, putting out this video becomes viral. And now you have what we call now these rhythm challenges that, that you're doing. So what's your creative process like now, now that you've, you've been doing these rhythm challenges? So after I found out that that was like the popular thing that people wanted from my page, which I was like, darn, I was trying to be funny and stuff like that. And it just became this rhythm challenge. And I kind of adopted the hashtag rhythm challenge, although some other people use it, but um, it's fun to share a cool hashtag with other people. Um, what I realized is people are having fun with these challenges because um, I think of just like the music choices. And um, originally I used the same song over and over. And then I eventually decided to add different songs just to kind of mix it up because some people would even say they, um, when I popped up on their for you page and they heard the song and saw my face that it would give them anxiety. Like I had to, like I had to drop everything and start clapping along because I saw you. So I changed up the music and I still continue to do that. And I just want to find stuff that's really fun to like, just um, clap along to or play an instrument along to I also try to find stuff that is educationally appropriate. So if there's ever songs with like explicit lyrics, I, I just won't pick it because I do want um, other people to be able to use these in their teaching, which has been amazing because so many educators have said, Hey, can I use these videos in my classroom? And I'm like, wow. Yes, absolutely. Like I feel so honored. And then after that original video, I was like, okay, I need to make maybe more levels. So I've been trying to um, kind of just mix it up with a variety of just challenges and just how challenging each one is. And then for the longest time, I had thought about doing melodic challenges, which is just reading different pitches and either singing or playing an instrument, but I couldn't quite figure out how to do it because it's a little bit more challenging and I didn't start doing that until more recently. And I've only made a couple because it is time consuming. You have to like pick uh, an appropriate song. You have to kind of plan what notes are going to be sung in relation to the chords being played or else it sounds really bad. <laughs> uh, it just sounds like, I mean, it could sound like, fun improv but um it's kind of hard for maybe the singers to do because the notes might clash a little bit more and i want it accessible to younger students so that they feel good about sight singing which is not always the case because anytime a teacher pulls out sight reading it's like oh that's the general the general feeling from students they're just like oh sight reading so it was kind of nice to see that these challenges kind of turned that and made sight reading fun again. Cause <laughs> like, yeah, sight reading cannot be fun at first because you're, it's a new skill and it's hard to master. So the fact that these challenges um, made it more fun is awesome. Like I love watching these duets and seeing that people are having fun with these because that's that's like every teacher's dream. Like, oh, you like sight reading. Thank goodness, because I know it can be not so fun. Yeah, 
Yeah, and so you've kind of found a, a fun way for them to to interact with that. And, right. and you've been able to actually utilize this the TikTok app to engage, whether it's students, just people you don't know. You've had a global reach now where it's you know been shown in various other, other countries. And now you also have educators that are reaching out that want to use that content. So I guess going along with that, do you think TikTok is an app that educators should look into with possibly engaging their students. Like let's say a college or a department within a college, they're looking to, you know, what what are other ways I can try to engage my students online through social media? And so let's say they have they've been using Facebook, they've been using Instagram. And so they do it at orientation or during appointments, they're like, hey, by the way, you can also follow us on our social media. We're gonna post reminders, you know, deadlines, um, information ab- about and anything you need to know as a student, or in this case, let's say a college student, whatever's going to try to help them to 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 graduate. And maybe they're finding that they have less interaction now on, let's say, Instagram, but they have more students that are going on to TikTok. You know, do you think that's something where a department could create their own TikTok account and possibly push some of that information through the TikTok app? Honestly, um, I think at the upper education levels where it's less worrisome what content is viewed, um, if maybe a department or even a class wanted to create its own TikTok for uh, students to follow, that would be great because it's kind of incorporated in their daily activity anyways because how often do we get onto TikTok? Oh, probably every day. <laughs> and <Yep>. <laughs> sometimes for much longer than you should have, like three hours mm-hmm. plus. So yeah, I would say if academic advisors or even professors, department heads want to just be part of what is being viewed right now, I would say go for it because mm-hmm. as long as your content is appropriate, I don't see a problem with that. And what's really cool, and I remember one of my friends saying it, um, he was like, gosh, Miguel, now your kids can't even escape on TikTok. Now you're there too. And I'm like, yeah, you know, but it like, if you're like in with what the kids are doing, it's fun. And I have seen that some of my kids um, do at my videos, which is, it's like heartwarming. It's like, oh, cool. And then there's something else I was going to say. Oh, so with TikTok, I didn't realize that there was like a teacher TikTok side. And for the longest time, I thought it was just like comedy, cats and dogs, and like Marvel movies, stuff like that. I did not know there were so many educators on TikTok. And that's because I had always heard, oh, TikTok is kind of lame. Like it's just these dance challenges and that's no place for a teacher. I was like, okay, I'm going to stay away from that. And then COVID happened. There's a lot of fun content on there. And when I discovered that there was a teacher side of TikTok, it was like being introduced to this really cool community because um, we all follow each other. And then I never realized that meeting other educators on TikTok would mean unlimited professional development. And I have learned so much this year on TikTok than I probably would have ever learned in like professional development that I've paid for. And it's really cool that it's just this free app where you can share ideas and bounce off and then 
I've met other educators and like we chat, we share resources. It's honestly one of the best professional developments I've ever gotten. And I know some educators are still worrisome to be on TikTok, but I'm like, I love it. I've learned so much and I would never want to go back because honestly, I don't think I would have survived teaching this year had I not learned so many different activities that I could incorporate in my classroom and just online. So I, I just want to give a shout out to all my fellow educator TikTokers because they've helped me so much and hopefully I've given some aid to them as well. Well, I think that's a, just even a good example of even if listeners are thinking like, well, maybe I don't want to use TikTok as something maybe I'll use in my office to engage our, our students. Maybe you can still get TikTok and use it for professional development because, yeah, like you're saying, I've learned a lot, too, through TikTok just by watching videos. I mean, there's a lot of ones that are, you know, not not the best. Yeah, questionable, I guess it was a great, great word to use for that one. But there's so, so many people that are posting some really educational content. And like you said, yeah, there's various types of groups from TikTok. So whether you have like the teachers of TikTok, the academics of TikTok or educators of TikTok, there's a lot of other individuals that you might be able to connect with just through this app. And I guess that kind of maybe goes into some tips. So like when when you're, you know, doing the rhythm challenges or trying to engage with your audience, what are some of your tips that you might have for people that, you know, are looking at it? Like, I want to engage my audience, but I know there's like time constraints with, with the videos. How can I be more creative pushing out some of that content? Right. And I like that you mentioned the time constraints. So right now I know there's like, you can do a 15 second clip, a 30 second clip and one minute, which sometimes gets tricky because I can only necessarily use the sounds that are already on TikTok so that I don't violate copyright. And sometimes a song just doesn't start in the right place. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going to use this song. And it's just weird because I like the longer videos. My followers like the longer videos. And originally I had started with the 15 second videos and for whatever reason, it's easier to edit when you constrict something to the 15 second mark, as opposed to the 30 second and the minute. So sometimes, sometimes if I do a longer challenge, I have to find a song that has a good startup, like a good four or eight counts. And then I just cut off the end. Sometimes it doesn't. And I'm like, okay, I can't use this video because it's taking like a good 12 beats to like get into a strong downbeat. Um, but for like tips for other people, I would say just how people have a shorter attention span because of social media, keep your videos short. Sometimes 15 seconds is actually too long. I always hear different tips and people are like, keep your videos around seven seconds because that's as long as some of us can go before we swipe up and just move on with our videos. Definitely try to find something that engages your followers. I never thought that my content would engage. And then after the fact, I was like, oh, yeah, it is engaging them because it's interactive and like they're having fun doing a duet. And some people have even said, like, I never would have done a duet on TikTok. So I felt comfortable doing this one. I was like, okay, awesome. When you do get followers, remember to thank them. 
I try to make videos frequently thanking them. And now that like I've gotten a lot of followers, I kind of base it off of my thousand mark. So every time I get to my next thousandth follower, I send them a message and I'm like, Hey, um, I'd love to give you a shout out. And then that kind of shows that like, yes, I'm paying attention. You are just as awesome as all these other thousand followers. So I, I just say, yeah, thank your followers. Sometimes you do not get the nicest people on TikTok. And at first I was like, I didn't respond to them. And then I'm like, you know what? Like I'm an adult and I don't want to come across as being distant if there's anything going on. So I try to be like understanding and willing to discuss any concerns I get because I, <laughs> um, most followers will see that I do get comments like, oh, he's flipping the cards too fast. And I try to engage with those commenters. And I'm, I say, you know, um, I have to flip the cards so people can see the next um see the next card in time or else it's going to be too late and you won't be able to perform as well as you can. And um, some people like rebuttal and try to argue. And I'm like, I'm not arguing. I'm just explaining why I'm doing this. And usually it works out in the better. And they're like, okay, I understand what, where you're coming from. And some people are just like, nope, <laughs> you're wrong. And I'm like, okay. That's fine. <laughs> I tried. Get your feedback. Yeah. I can't please everyone. And then like my last tip would be just post a variety of content and see what sticks, but also post a variety of content to kind of tell your story. So um, I don't always post a rhythm challenge. Sometimes I post like what I'm doing in my classroom or sometimes I do at funny puns or just random people playing piano and not playing the note you expect. Like I remember that one did pretty well. So stick to a variety of things, but try to tell your story at the same time, just so people know like who you are. And that kind of goes back to my teaching philosophy of letting people know that you're a real person. So I'm not just a person that holds up cards. Like I'm a teacher and I like nerdy things and I don't know. I like, Honey jokes. That's just who I am. If I were to give some tips on what like not to do, it kind of goes along with how I said being understanding and willing to discuss concerns. Try not to engage with your negative commenters. Like, well, you should engage with them, but don't do it negatively. Don't try to fight the fire with fire. Just be understanding, appreciate their feedback, and just honestly, just be the bigger person. No one can say that you're being mean, like you're just engaging with them. A lot of people get so hung up on how many followers they have, how many view counts they have, and like the algorithm. And yeah, I know people can say, well, you have a lot of those, so of course you're not worried about it. Yeah, it's easy for you to say. Right. Yeah, exactly. Easy for you to say. But honestly, I had no clue that my one video was going to go viral. And then when it did at first, I was like, Oh my gosh, that's so many views. Like I got to keep getting those views. And then it became less fun. We'll say that. And then I just decided to stop focusing on it and just do my content, not worry about 
how many views I'm getting. Because honestly, my views have gone down. And I think that's because, like, I guess the app in itself kind of gives you the sense of, oh, you just won the lottery. Now keep doing it. But you don't keep winning the lottery unless you're, like, a really big content creator. So, yeah, some of my more recent challenges aren't doing as well. And I'm okay with that. I'm not so worried about those view counts. And then the other thing is just don't be worried about posting constant because gosh, when I first got started on it, it was like this adrenaline rush. And I'm like, I'm going to post six videos a day. And it took up so much time and kind of just learning to unplug from it is good too. Oh yeah. That's, that's definitely a lot of great advice there, especially the unplugging. Sometimes you need definitely need to take a break. I think also the acknowledging like your audience, your followers, because if you're just going to just post and not interact with them, then they just might move on and go someplace else. So I think that that's great for, you know, advisors or departments that are trying to connect with their group of students or even if it's your incoming students or continuing students, interact with them. You know, they they're people, too. And, you know, you do want to have that acknowledgement. And so we talked about time constraints with like the TikTok videos, but there's also time constraints with you being a full-time choir director. So like you work at uh, two different schools, you're a choir director, you're a teacher, you TikTok is something that you do like on the side, but it is something that you're giving time to. So how do you manage giving you all your focus to your students, to your class, but also being a TikTok creator on the side? That's a great question. And um, I kind of alluded to that just a second ago. Honestly, my life and my job come first, and TikTok is definitely just something fun to do on the side. And more recently, with the end of the school year coming up and teaching in the middle of a pandemic, there is a lot going on. And I have had to unplug from TikTok for the last probably two or three weeks. And my students have even noticed, they're like, Mr. J, are you okay? You haven't... You haven't done a live. You haven't posted a TikTok in over three weeks. Like, what is going on? And I'm like, the end of the school year is stressing me out. Remember, I'm a real person. Like, I can't do all of this. So, yeah, like, my life and my job come first. And teaching in general is just so time-consuming that doing TikTok at first was fun. But now it's like, oh, my gosh, this is like, it almost feels like another thing that I feel I have to do. And I don't want it to be that way. I want it to still be fun. So I think these past three weeks of kind of unplugging have been good. And I feel like I'm going to keep these in, in this recording. <laughs> it's perfect. So yeah, I, I definitely try to put more focus on like my personal life and mental health because who hasn't need to work or who has not needed to work on their mental health this year? Like, if you haven't, are you okay? <laughs> yeah. Like I think we all have. And then I guess just like finding the balance in TikTok itself, my content definitely leads to more time consumption because I have to plan these challenges. Sometimes I have to mm-hmm. like create my own rhythm cards and print them out, laminate them, get them all fancy looking. I have to take time to respond to any comments I get. I have to view the duets. I really like to take time, watch those duets, 
and not just like scroll past them. And like, I try to also drop a comment like in every person's duet, which sometimes I get a lot of duets and I really, it like breaks my heart when some people say, Oh, I don't think he's ever going to watch it. Like, I really want to try, but sometimes there are so many that they do slip through the cracks. Um, and then I also like to engage with any negative comments I get or with those people who feel like I'm ignoring them on purpose. I'm like, no, I'm really, really not like that is not who I am. It's just, there are, there's a lot to do. So I just want people, I mean, if any of my followers happen to listen to this, I'm like, I love you. Like I understand and it's just hard to get through all of these things because for whatever reason, my content needs more things because you have to engage with your audience, engage with your followers. And I have to plan these challenges. I can't just like do a challenge. You have to think about how it works. Yeah. And I think just hearing you talk about that, I think just kind of leads back to me with advising in general or having this trying to engage and connect with students it is something that you are planning you're you know you have to think it through what do i want to post how often am i going to post when am i going to post what kind of content am i going to post and so in a way it kind of is like a mini job and so in this case too like if there's anyone that's listening that is trying to utilize social media or wants to utilize social media it's like you may want to talk to your boss and ask if this can be like a a job responsibility and because it is something that is not something that you may have time to do if you already have your regular responsibility. So this is like an add-on. And even just to say, well, it's part of the other duties assigned. It's like, well, it's actually a, a, a real job duty if you were to try to pursue this. So one thing too, it's like, you know, we talk about TikTok, but something else that you've used in your classroom has been GimKit. And so can you talk about what GimKit is? And do you think that is something that might be adapted in a college setting if in terms of like orientation or workshops? Oh my gosh. So I have to give full credit to one of my fellow educators and dear friends because she introduced me to GimKit. Like I did not find this on my own. She showed it to me and I was like, why is this so cool? And what GimKit is, is kind of like those other apps like Kahoot and Quizzes where you set up kind of like vocabulary review or just concept review and basically there's different game modes. So it's not just always answering the questions the same way. Um, when you get into these different game modes, yes, you're answering these questions, but there's like a different premise to each one. So one my students like a lot is kind of like Among Us, where we have any number of imposters and they're answering these questions, but they are getting energy points to investigate other players in the game. And so they're thinking less about, oh, I'm doing a music theory review right now. And more of like, oh, is Johnny over there the imposter? So it's, it's so cool because there are just these different game modes. There's like humans versus zombies and there's infinity mode where they have to buy all six infinity stones and then snap the rest of the class away. Like it's so much fun. And when I realized how engaging it was, I purchased it. And then my kids are like, Oh gosh, here we go. Give me a kid again. 
like, guys, I bought it. <laughs> I need to use it. It's a lot of fun. Once I bought it, though, I realized there were these other features like Kit Collab where they can make questions as well. So at first I didn't know how it worked and then I've gotten really good at it. So all I have to do is share the link with my students and I've taught them how to like put a question about themselves in because originally they would put like, uh, what is my favorite color? And when you see that question come up, it's like, who is this for? So I had to kind of teach them, you know, you need to put your name in there. It's kind of weird talking about yourself in the third person. You need to put a question mark. And they hate when I ask them to put a question mark. My grammar is important. Spelling is important. But it's really cool because it's super quick. And they can just type up their questions. Originally, I was going to make the kit from a Google form I gave them. And then I found Kit Collab. And they were able to all make it instantaneously. And we can see like the answers. And what I love about it is the class gets to know a little bit about everyone. So at first I took on too much. So this would definitely be good advice for anyone who tries Kit Collab. I was like, okay, you're going to do these three questions. And then it was my class of 30. It was 90 questions. And I was like, okay, I can't remember the answers to any of these things. So I eventually just said, okay, we're going to do one question. So we've done like favorite color, um, favorite superhero, favorite TV show, just like one a day. And it's a fun icebreaker and it's less scary because who doesn't, as a teacher, I don't like icebreakers at staff meetings. Like, <laughs> Let's get real. The less I have to talk at a staff meeting, the more confident I am. So I think that's nice for them too. Yes, we want them to be able to be comfortable talking, but it's also like that's who they are in their generation as Gen Zs. They're like, they don't want to do, they don't want to engage with people like that. So I think meeting them at their level is good too. So them being able to type out something about themselves and not having to say it is a nice way to to break the ice. And then sometimes when they forget, they do ask that person, they're like, hey, what was your favorite color? I forgot. So it's a lot of fun. And I have all those kits saved, so if we ever wanted to go back to them, we could do it. What I also learned is GimKit is accessible to anyone. It's kind of like that game Jackbox TV where anyone can log in with their phone. So GimKit, you can log in with a computer or your phone um, if you just go to the website and enter the code. And I tried it on one of my TikTok lives, which was actually a lot of fun. So I had a bunch of questions of Disney trivia, and I had people log in, and it was fun to just engage with my followers on a less, like, this is my content, I'm speaking awkwardly for two hours and hoping people will ask questions. So GimKit has a lot of great uses. You can get to know people or you can just quiz them generally, but honestly, it's just, it's so much fun. Different game modes. Yeah, it sounds like something that's easily adaptable. So hopefully listeners will, will check that out. And as we're getting close to time, is there anything that you've learned about yourself as a choir director, as a teacher during this pandemic? I mean, I have to say that... My content specifically is not fun when we are virtual. Like, let's get real. Music music is live 
and music is about human interaction and being separated from my students was really hard this year. I didn't get to hear them all sing at the same time for gosh, five, six months almost. And it really, I know it affected them and it affected me too. And I don't think they realized that. So finally, when we were able to come back, which it was still, it was still a struggle because we weren't allowed to sing in the building or outside of the building. So they were in class, but we still couldn't do music until more recently. And then finally, when we were allowed to sing outside, it was a little more fun. But now that we're able to sing indoors, it's been like, oh, I can do what I do. So teaching music during a pandemic is not as fun. It is not. Definitely hearing my students sing at the same time and just being able to engage with them has been a lot of fun. But it's still hard because our district offers both. So in-person learning and virtual learning. So that's also been a struggle is equally engaging with my students who are still at home as opposed to the ones in the classroom. So it's still rough and I'm, I'm just looking forward and being hopeful for next year that we can return to some sort of normalcy and get back to making music the way we should. Absolutely. And if listeners have any questions or they, they want to connect, maybe they have a question about TikTok or Gimmick Kit, how can they best reach you? Um, I guess the best way to reach me would be on my TikTok. And my tag is at HaunterHunter91. And they can drop a comment in one of my videos. They can't necessarily send me a private message. I think they can try. I'm not sure how that works. Oh, because I think both both have to be following one another. Yeah, exactly. So I think there is a way to where you can request to send a message. And if they wanted to do that, they definitely can. Or if they even want to reach me at my at my school email, it's miguel.hotamio at rrps.net. And rrps stands for Rio Rancho Public Schools. All right. Well, Miguel, we've reached time on this podcast interview. Thank you so much for being on I learned a lot and hopefully listeners as well. I think we can easily adapt some of your tips and tricks for um, GimKit or even for TikTok with engaging our students online. And thank you so much again for being with us today. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, Miguel, for joining us today and sharing your insights about social media, your experience with TikTok, as well as your teaching philosophy. Coming up now, it's our interview with James Alford from Columbia College, Chicago. All right, next up, we have James Alford. James works as an academic advisor at Columbia College, Chicago, which we had a previous guest on the podcast from Columbia College, Chicago, and that was Jessica J.J. Jensen. James is also a speaker, a presenter, a mentor, and the host of the 79th Street Podcast, which James looks to give advice and share his experiences from being a student and professional in higher education. James attended Northern Illinois University, where he earned a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science and a minor in Black Studies and a Master of Science in Adult and Higher Education. James was able to study abroad in Beijing, China, where he studied leadership, service, and culture. And this experience has shaped his perspective on many things and opened up so many opportunities to him as a student and currently as a professional. James, welcome to the podcast. 
Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, we're delighted to get the opportunity to chat to you, James, and uh, lots of interesting things to talk about, I'm sure. Well, we like to get an opportunity to know you and give our listeners an opportunity to, to get to know you initially. So um, I suppose in terms of your work in higher ed, what, like interested in, in your path into to higher ed and getting to where you are now. Um, can you talk to us a little bit? Was it something that you always wanted to do or how, how did you end up, how did you end up getting to where you are now, James? So, so, so that's funny. So um, in college, I was like super involved and um, I was really involved with our residence hall association um, in college. And so as a freshman, um, I'm going to conferences represent our, our residence hall. And um, I remember they used to have like the student affairs sessions. And, um, and and I actually had a very great relationship with my hall director at the time, um, Martise. And uh, Martise was a, um, a higher ed professional by trade and uh, indirectly was kind of grooming me a bit, you know, because he, he's like, hey, I think you'll be a great, you know, fit. Actually seeing Martise, um, like two years ago when I was um, in my previous role, um, he was working for OrgSync at the time. And he was just, you know, he was just so delighted. It's like, you know, I saw this for you. I'm so excited for you. But I think, you know, just having like some of those experiences, right, where I'm doing that and that's kind of like my, my intro. And then um, I started working at the Center for Black Studies, um, working in admissions, the TRIO office, um, and I worked in student involvement, leadership development as the um, vice president of finance for the programming board. And I was kind of like, I, I was doing it because people were like, well, you're involved in those things. It's time for you to take leadership positions. But then it was like that shift where um, I started talking to my trio advisor and she was like, hey, I think you could go to grad school. And then she just kind of broke it down on where like, I think this would be perfect. And um, I remember when I made the decision to apply for the higher ed program and I was looking to the different things, I just got a lot of support from the staff who who had knew me and seen me. They said, bro, we, we knew that from the beginning. Like, you know, we, we knew you were going to end up in higher ed. I was like, I didn't know it. But everything I was doing was just, you know, a small facet of it where, like, now you come in with a bunch of experience and, you know, a bunch of things were like, um, as a professional, you've had some of those, like I said, tough conversations um, or even like just experience, right, where um, I studied abroad. That makes useful because a lot of our, um, a good percentage of our, our international students are from China. And so when that comes up in a conversation, I say, oh, I studied abroad in China. Rather, you know, they live in Beijing or not, you know, they face just light up like, oh, and, you know, and they could kind of tone into it. And so um, I just think, like I said, it was just a, a journey where I was just doing stuff I was passionate about. And then somebody helped me make the connection. And I was like, oh, that's what it was. And um, I don't think it was the, like I said, a wrong choice, like I said, because I got a lot of great support. And, you know, some of those same people to this day, you know, they tell me like, hey, we think you're doing um, your best. You know, you're needed um, in the field, you know, because I think um, when you have people you know, who have a true passion for it and not some people who, um, you know, they luck up and they get a job, you know, they're in the right place at the right time. Um, I think, you know, uh, people like, hey, you deserve to be here. And so 
I'm just excited to, you know, have have the experiences, you know, but also be able to, you know, work in the field because I do think and know that um, we impact um, students in a very dynamic way, but also we help change their narrative of, um, you know, what advising is because, you know, some students aren't pro-advising or they don't think we're the place for them. And, you know, I think in our roles, we have to show them like, hey, this is why, you know, you need us and we're, we're just like you in so many ways and you don't even know it. Yeah. And sometimes and students could probably possibly have an idea of what they think an academic advisor is and have this kind of create a story. And then we kind of have to break it down and be like, nope, that's not what we do. This is what we do. And this is how much we can actually help you. And it seems through the time, like you've had a lot of mentors that, that have, you know, seen things in you. And I guess with that, have you, when you were a student, you know, you had, when we had talked offline, you had mentioned that, you know, it took a while before you saw your academic advisor and, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, can you talk about maybe when you were seeing it, why you didn't see your academic advisor and then what kind of got you to finally start seeing and meeting with your advisor? Okay. So, so that's a fair question. And, and I tell this to, to my students too, right? Mm-hmm. You know, cause um, I think the issue you run into in advising is you have students who, who are on it and you see them every semester, but then you have some students who you may see every three semesters, you know, once a year, you know, and so, but the reason I stopped going to advising was because one, technically there weren't any safeguards like some schools do where it says you have to be with an advisor. So we didn't have any of those, but my first semester, I ended up withdrawing from a class off top. And that kind of like, I felt some type of way, you know, as a student, because, you know, here I had this advisor say, oh, you can take those classes, but not really me not understanding, but them not explaining like, but that class isn't going to count towards your major, it's going to count as an elective. Now, me being an advisor now, I understand this and we're like, that was the wrong advisor to take advice from because they knew my LAS core, like my gen eds, they didn't know my major where I should have talked to somebody from the major. And so um, that kind of, you know, put a, you know, a certain taste, you know, in my mouth. And I was like, all right. But also, too, I was indirectly getting a lot of guidance, you know, elsewhere where I had people who was in my major, who had did my major and was like, oh, you can take these classes, take these teachers. And so I was indirectly getting advised by some of the upperclassmen. And once I learned how to read the genetics, it was kind of like over with. Like I learned how to read the genetics as a freshman. And so I really didn't need it, but what made me meet with an advisor was one, um, I got put on an academic probation and they kind of, hey, uh, well, I can't say probation. It was probation, but I had got dismissed uh, from, from college. And so um, they liked the schedule I had set up for semester three. and was like, hey, we like the schedule. We think you can be successful. You need to come meet with us. So they kind of forced my hand, like. And it's like, all right, I got to meet with you. If not, they're going to kick me out of school. And um, But I think secondary, you know, time passed in between that visit and when I initially went maybe three semesters later where I knew graduation was coming up and I knew like, hey, I need to figure some stuff out because I think I have an idea, um, but I need confirmation from them. And my thoughts were right. Um, and it worked out meeting with the different advisors because I went to my LAS advisor, you know, it was like, okay, cool. You're good. Um, and then I went to my major advisor and it was like, well, 
we're going to update your major to this catalog year. So that way we have to sub in like six classes I had taken in a major because they weren't in the major I came in on. And so, um, you know, that saved me time at the end trying to rush and uh, figure it out. But it was just because I knew, um, like I said, I knew graduation was coming and I wanted, I didn't want any surprises. So I was like, all right, I got to go meet with, you know, the advisors. And even like now, um, I tell students, like, you know, I'm pro advising, right? Where if you can meet with an advisor, you know, meet with an advisor, you know, because the more you meet with an advisor, you know, not saying we're rushing through the students, you know, um, profiles, but you just know it, you're more familiar with it versus when you haven't met with a student in two or three years, you got to look at that as a blank slate because you don't have, you don't have any interest, your notes and aren't up to date. And so, you know, something, like, hey, meet with your advisor because it's going to help them and it's going to save you from a 30, 45 minute appointment, you know, whereas if you do it irregularly, it could be, you know, 10, 15 minutes, depending on what you got to, to, to discuss. Yeah, I think um, I'm, I'm thinking of that uh, that scene in uh, Jerry Maguire that helped me help you. That's uh, <laughs> uh, coming to, to mind there. So I was interested in in hearing about another of uh, your your kind of undergrad experiences because, um, as Matt mentioned in your bio, you studied abroad, and um, I was mentioned to you just before we started recording. I used to run a study abroad program, passionate about study abroad and and that getting that international experience. So I'm interested in hearing about you know your time um, going to China. Did you know much before you went, or, or what was the the decision? What was the reason you decided to to go and study abroad, James? Um, so my reason for studying abroad, it wasn't my own. So, um, I went on a, uh, as they say, a faculty led trip. Um, so we had three staff that chaperoned our trip. Um, there were six students. And so, um, Ms. Curry, um, she worked in the Center for Black Studies. Um, I was a student working in the Center for Black Studies. We were very close. We're still very close to this day. And she was kind of like, Hey, you know, I'm chaperoning this trip. You're going, I'm like, <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm not going. And um, and so pretty much um, it went from like this idea of her saying it to, you know, me taking the steps to study abroad, right? Where I'm applying to get into the program. Uh, Miss Curry helping me, you know, raise funds to, you know, get my passport, airfare um, and things of that sort. And yeah, like, and it went from, like I said, uh, a thought, a words to, hey, you're studying abroad. And, you know, after having that experience, like, I'm not going to say I knew much. Like, we had, like, one or two info sessions, like, before where they was trying to, you know, talk about, you know, the, you know, kind of like the demographics, like, where we'll be staying, um, learn some basic language and things of that sort. But we didn't know, we didn't know a lot, like, um we were fortunate enough to have a a guy that was with us most of the trip. Um, watermelon was a was a blessing in disguise, you know, because um, one of the um, one of the the chaperones um, um, she had went to China like the year before and made a connection, and so she kind of was like, "Hey, we're coming," you know. Uh, this is what we can do. And she was with us most of the trip. Like it might have been like two days where she wasn't with us, um, but she was with us for the long haul. Um, like I said, truly a blessing, you know, just to have her. But um, but we we really were able to just immerse in that culture 
um, because with the exception of one person, so it was like nine of us, um, the guy who I roommate with on the trip, um, he was a Mandarin miner, so he um, probably, he, he, he knew more than the rest of us. Um, but the rest of us was kind of like, we went because of Miss Curry. I, I can tell you that much. Like, Miss Curry said she was going, and so she just had that that pulling where students or even, like, their parents, like, hey, we're comfortable with, with you know, my kids going, you know, with her because she's going to, you know, look out. And so because um, to give some, like, perspective, right, where um, of the students, five of the students were um, Black, African-American, and we all had some type of involvement with the Center for Black Studies. And then the guy who I room with, guy was just, I want to say he was like a, a add-on, like I said, but he was a Mandarin minor, and he was able to get some credits for that uh, from attending because he had an instructor. I think his, his his Mandarin instructor was actually in China when we visited, and she was visiting her family, and they invited us over for dinner one night. So that was a like an experience you, you can't get, you know, right? Where you get to go into their home and have a like say a cultured meal. And just learn more about their culture in a, a intimate environment where you don't have to worry about, um, I don't want to say pop, paparazzi, but that's kind of what it is, you know, um, being in China, um, being black. People were just so excited to see us and wherever we went, they wanted to take pictures. And so it was good to have like those, you know, you know, get back to the hotel, those intimate moments where one, you could debrief, you know, but also just not work feel like all the attention is on you now flash forward like when you're meeting with students have you had any students that were on the fence of doing study abroad and then you got to tell them about your experience and then they got super excited to hopefully one day do it or have done it yeah i think um you know with, with studying abroad you know um so it, it, it's been tough the past what two years i would say um and you know that's just because of, like i said we have had COVID going on but you know when students do mention it, you know, I do drop it and they get excited about it. Like, hey, I, you know, I want to do something like that because when you explain it, um, right, because some people think like, oh, I have to do a year long trip or a semester long trip. And then I say like, well, there's a bunch of different trips you can do. Like you can do like these three, four week trips. Um, they have like 10 day trips. You know, it's just a matter of what you're comfortable with and what your school is offering. And when they hear that, they was like, oh, my gosh, I think I could do one of those, you know, those smaller trips as opposed because when, when you hear you think about like, oh, I, I got to be going from a semester. I don't know if I can do that, you know, but then you, you explain to them. And so I think just having that insight, you know, but also, um, you know, just telling them and showing them like, hey, I did it. You can do it. And like, you know, I'm a trio student. So I think that just speaks for itself where my family couldn't contribute anything to me studying abroad. The only thing that, you know, my mom could do was pick me up and drop me off at the airport. Like that was like the extent everything else, like I said, was a combination of like, um, like I said, Miss Curry, you know, what she had to offer. And like I said, she 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 did a lot, like, you know, making sure that um, I had a passport and working with, um, you know, different organizations and her connections to um, to help me get airfare, you know, um, you know, to go. And I think outside of that, everything else just kind of um, fell in line. And our study abroad program was good about letting us know that they had like these travel grants we could get. And so 
I think we all were eligible for like a thousand dollars. So that's just like another, like I said, another piece of it. And then, um, and then like, you know, just the work, you know, afterwards where, you know, me keeping my grades up, you know, but also like, you know, Miss Curry, you know, um, pretty much going to the school and saying, Hey, you know, I got this student, you know, it's pretty solid student needs some more help. And, you know, to the school kind of backtrack and give me a scholarship to cover the remaining balance I had for the, the, the study abroad trip, you know, because um, I was registered for classes for that fall, um, but I was going to run into issues for the spring um, because I, like I said, I had a, I had a nice balance, but Miss um, Curry, like I said, you know, she, she found a way to um, make that happen. And, w- and when students hear, you know, hear, hear that story, like I say, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm special, you know, if that makes sense. But, but I think if you had, like I said, the right people, you know, in your circle that, that believe in you, but they, they love hearing those stories because, like I say, it, it, it sparks the interest. And, um, you know, and even like now, like I say, it's another conversation starter, right? Because we, we all, um, we all are interested about in different things. And so like for some things, like my major is political science. So, we you know, those political science kids, they could talk about anything, you know, but when we talk about like the different involvements, um, like I said, the study the bride, their conversation starters and they, they help, they help students see it as a viable option. I think that's the, um, the important thing where when they can see somebody that looks like them or somebody that is in our role, they say, okay, I can do that. I think that's a realistic goal for me to accomplish. Yeah, no, absolutely. The the ability to to kind of talk about your own lived experience and, and to share that with the, the students is so valuable. Now, in in your current role in Columbia College Chicago, you started, I think, in October 2019. Um, so you had uh, just about got your your feet under the the, the desk when um, the the pandemic hit, and um, I suppose when we talked to, to JJ, she had, she actually started during the pandemic. But I, I'm interested because you you would have just started, kind of just got used to maybe the th- the way things were, and then had the, the rug pulled out from under your feet a little bit. What was that experience like, James? Um, it, it, it was tough, right? Um, it was tough because. You know, I was just getting acclimated. You know, I probably worked in the office five months and then it's like, oh, hey, here's COVID. And, um, and, you know, of that five months, um, the first month I was pretty much training. Um, I kind of kicked the training wheels off early, you know, only because, um, you know, I was kind of a little um, I was kind of a little bored. And so um, I had a coworker who started the week before I did. And it was only because she wasn't working. And, you know, I was, I was working, and so I needed to give her two weeks. And so she started, like, the week before I did, and so I started the week after. And so um, we kind of came off our training wheels at the same time. And it's only because I was like, hey, I know from from doing this, the best thing is just having that experience, meeting with the students. And so I kind of rushed it. And my boss was okay with it. She said, I know you can meet with students. I'm okay with, you know, you jumping into uh, our registration rush. and." meeting with students. She's like, you know, if it gets overwhelming, let us know. And I, I, and I think from that point, it was like, all right, you know, introduce yourself to your caseload and, you know, get it started. But it was tough because I don't feel like I had enough time to um, make any meaningful connections outside of our office. And so being in this virtual space, it, it was kind of hard to, um, 
you know, to, to direct students in, in some ways because, like, I knew the people in my office, you know, and we have a big advising de- department. Um, I knew our trio peeps um, because they're in our same, like, academic unit. And outside of that, it's like, you know, I don't know anybody in housing. And so, you know, it was it was tough for me. And I think also, too, right, where that um, imposter syndrome hit because, like, you know some stuff. And now you're questioning yourself because, you know, when you have those brain farts, as we say, you can't just go next door and say, oh, hey, Stephanie, or, oh, hey, JJ, you know, do you remember this? Or, hey, Jill, you know, and so now you're like, do I know, do I know how to be an advisor? Like, so some of those things start happening, but it, but it definitely was tough, like, to go from that and then, like, um, I don't know if it was Lorraine or I think it was Lorraine, then JJ, they got hired. So I think Lorraine did like a week in the office and then COVID happened. And then JJ was like soon after that. And it was like, it was, it was interesting. Like it it was definitely interesting. And um, like, you know, kudos to them, like I said, because I don't know, I noticed that that's the new normal, but I don't know how, I don't know how and if I would have been able to, um, to, to, to do that, like transition in a remote world. And I know like even being in this remote space, a lot of people have been reluctant to, to, to switch jobs um, from what I've seen. Yeah. It's, it's one of those, yeah, where it's like, do I change jobs and who knows if I will be able to stay in that job or how's the budget going to look and all that. But yeah, I think the same thing I, I've seen too, is a lot of people kind of like just, holding and sticking it out and seeing, seeing what happens. Now, you know, you're talking about the pandemic, talking about, you know, the, not being able to see like your other, other coworkers or to just, you know, if a student has a question, yeah, literally just be able to hold on, give me a second, go next door, ask the question, come back. Yes, you can't do that or no, you can't, or here's, here's what we got to do. And now it's like maybe we're using teams or, you know, some other type of technology to, you know, hopefully get some of those quick answers, or it might be, we just have to say, I'll get back to you on that and then find the answer later. How are things looking right now in terms of any updates from your institution on what the fall is going to look like? So um, they kind of, the best way to put it, they kind of was trying to solidify that um, before they put out the course schedule for fall. So um, we have way more classes on campus hybrid for the fall than we've had probably all of this past year. Um, we just got an email this week. I want to say Wednesday. Um, the plan is to get staff back on campus um, over the summer. Um, they're going to start with one day, then t- one day a week, then two days a week. So where entities can get back to, I think, possibly being open, you know, every day of the week or whatever they see fit. Um, so it, it's going to be interesting, um, you know, moving forward, because I think, um you know, it's looking very, very promising um, because like the city of Chicago um, is relaxing some of um, the things they had in place. And so the city of Chicago is anticipating being opening back up like around July 4th. And so I think with just like some of that information, you know, things are trying to get back to as normal as we can. And um, so like I'm interested to see, you know, how it affects because, um, you know, I know there was a lot of if, ands, and buts, you know, prior to like this fall semester. Like, for example, 
Um, being an advisor, like not everybody has an office with six feet clearance. But then, you know, I've heard of stuff where, you know, there's been a lot of um, research and things done by like the CDC and stuff where they're saying like, well, you can get away with three feet because that's what they're using in um, the classrooms, like, you know, in the elementary um, level and things of that sort. And so I think it would just be interesting to see like people comfortable out of it because I think that's the, the biggest thing, you know, right, where, um, you know, if you tell somebody you traveled during COVID, you might get some 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 crazy looks like what you know you traveled during covid you know and so i think everybody's gonna have different comfortabilities and so i think it's gonna create like a a new culture of office norms right because um you have people like me where like i'm a people person i'm not gonna lie like i thrive off of um you know being around people but you have some people who may say like they're not people people they're like hey i want everybody to stay back and so i know it's gonna create like a new culture of um what's name because like I said, regardless of, you know, what's going on, we're, we're going to go back and like I said, you know, and to me, it's not going to be too far-fetched, like I said, because I I was going in the office from July to about November, you know, once a week. So um, I'm not, you know, I'm not opposed to it. Um, so it's just interesting to see how that looks as far as um, the, the full campus. I think uh, we've been chatting for about half an hour, and, and it's very obvious you're a, a people person. And I am, I'm, I'm five thousand miles away, and I can tell that that James in, in a virtual sense. But one of the things I suppose that about being a people person, and uh, you know, in terms of the the pandemic, you were you were busy because you you started a podcast, and uh, I, I suppose um, you know. Matt mentioned that in in the your bio, but can you talk to us a little bit more about um, your podcast and and what what you cover in it? Yeah, so crazy, you know, being um, in quarantine because I think at first we all treated quarantine as quarantine, right? Um, I didn't see my mom and my brothers and nephews for probably like two months, you know, and then it just hit that point where it was like, you know, a like, and my mom was living two blocks away from where I was, so it's like. It's like, hey, you know, you could come over. I'm like, I need to get out of the house, so I'm I'm gonna walk around there, you know, you know, type deal. And so, um, but one of my friends, former colleague, um, at my first institution, um, at Saint Xavier, was like, you know, James, you got these great ideas and a unique perspective. You need to put it on paper, and I was, and I started writing these blogs, and then, but I was only sharing the blogs like her, like. So I would write the stuff and she was like, you need to make it to a podcast. And I was like, and so I had remembered something, you know, from talking to um, some of my former students because they had did a podcast and um, I was listening to them. And so I'm like, oh, I, I can use this app. And so I had played around and did like a test run. And she's like, no, that's it. And so I look up, I was banning a microphone and then, um, um, you know, it started coming together because I had pre-planned a bunch of episodes before I launched. Like, I think I pre-planned like five episodes and then launched. And so um, what I did was um, I named the 79th Street Podcast. Um, I'm from Chicago. I'm from the south side of Chicago. So that's like the street I grew up on. And so a lot of times when people hear the 79th Street, um, it kind of has a negative connotation. Um, And, you know, and so I kind of wanted to change um on changing that. And so, and what I look to talk about is some, um, 
educational topics. And so I try to give students um, what they need to be successful in college. And so um, we talked about everything, like I said, from studying abroad to, um, you know, like some financial literacy episodes, you know, on adulting, like how it is to be in that transitional space. And I think you'll be surprised at like how many people um, can relate. And I'm surprised at how many people who may not be in the field and reach out with like, like a kid who I grew up with. And I probably haven't seen them since like, like 2006 or seven or something. And he had started messaging me was like, man, I'm back in this. Cause he was living in Hawaii for a bit. And he was like, man, I'm out in the suburbs. He said, but I've been listening to your podcast. I think it's dope. You know, just learn about your, your journey and story. And so I'm like, I'm like, whoa. And, and that was something I was expecting because this is a person um, with a military background. And I don't know if he has plans to go back to school, but I think off the strength, because like I said, it was me. It was just like, you know, hey, I want to listen. And so, and also like a lot of my students from um, um, St. Xavier, you know, they really enjoyed it, you know, the podcast. And I've been able to pull them on episodes because they're the students now. Like I was a student and, I'm a lot closer to being a student than some other professional, but they're students now. They're living this, and so I think it's good to highlight their their experiences. And so um, I've been, like I said, brainstorming, like I said, because I'm kind of on hiatus, like, you know, just a, a little break, you know. Um, I got through season two. Uh, so people have definitely been asking about season three. Uh, you know, I just had a conversation with um, one of my uh, mentees just yesterday, and she was like, hey, you know, what's up with season three? And I was like, it's going to happen. I said, well, for season three, I was like, you know, I want you to be, um, you know, my co-host for season three. And she was like, okay. She's like, let me finish these interviews because she's graduated now. So I think it would be great to have that perspective of, and like I said, she has a different perspective than me because she graduated in three years, you know, has a twin sister and she graduated during COVID. I think that, you know, is a huge accomplishment where, you know, you know, I hope all of those students who who did have to graduate during COVID, they get their roses, you know, because so many people who have degrees now, um, they, 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 they all say one thing. I don't know if I could have went through school under these conditions. You know, I wasn't made for those conditions. And you have all of these students persistent. And I think it's I think it's great to, to highlight that and just give them the roses. And so um, but. That's what I'm looking to do, uh, you know, maybe looking to branch out into like some other like topics because, you know, there's a lot of things that that interest me, you know, and where some people was like, well, hey, you know, let's change the way we talk about, edu- ed- you know, education, right? You know, anything can be educational. It's just a matter of how can you connect it back to your your audience base. And so I'm kind of going through um, that phase of, you know, trying to see like, how can I incorporate uh, some other topics um, that, you know, I may see, you know, sit here and say like, oh, I want to do something, you know, about that, you know, in- incorporate those into um, the podcast. Yeah. And education so broad. And it's crazy how you can connect anything to anything. <laughs> you can make it work. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to seeing or listening in when season three comes out. And one of the things, too, you know, we've been talking about over this this interview has been, you know, you've mentioned a lot of different individuals from like when you were a college student to mm-hmm. being at being an advisor to when you were doing study abroad. 
And it, it's all been these mentors, you know, and so individuals that have kind of been in your life that whether or not you chose them, they were there <laughs> and they, they've been people that, that have seen things in you. And, you know, whether it's it's not like they went and said, this is the person I'm going to I'm going to help or I want to work with. They see they saw something and you had those connections with them. Now, as advisors, you know, we meet with students all the time and, you know, some we meet with more constantly th than others, but sometimes advisors may not see themselves or not even advisors, even just anyone that's an advisor professional may not see themselves as advice or as mentors, but you've been a mentor to a lot of uh, students. You've been mentored. Any advice that you have for advice professionals who never thought of themselves as mentors or any advice you have for, for those, those individuals? Yeah. So I think, you know, as a professional, um, you know, like some people want to do it, but some people don't want to do it. And that's completely OK, because, you know, like I tell people like um, it, it's it's work, you know, and it might be work outside of work, you know, where some people they don't want to, um, you know, they don't want to do it. But for those who want to do it, I would say be open. Look at those students that come to you a lot and they may consider you a mentor and you don't know it. Like, especially if they're sharing, you know, a lot of those personal ideas and, and, and details with you. Um, but I would say just be open, you know, open to it. But I also think, too, we're all going to draw in different students, right, where there's going to be students who they come to us because they have to. It says you're my advisor. I'm going to come to you. But, like, you know, with me um, being a, a black male, you know, I have students who want to interact with me because of that, right, where they've been in a number of advising spaces and say, Oh hey, I've never I've never had a black advisor, you know, in a program I was with. Like, you know, and those are like different conversations, you know, all together. Especially, I don't want to say when a student leave with that, but like, you know, their their guard is already down a little bit, and so they tend to like stuff they may not show to another advisor. They they'll share with me just because of, um, you know, th them seeing that. And so, um, I think for like the professionals. Uh, I think if advising is fulfilling. Um, you get to create like a bunch of, I don't want to say mini use, but like um, I was always told like when I was in undergrad, um, like, you know, some of my, my peeps always said, they said, man, you know, we don't make a lot of money. They said, but our pay is seeing you cross the stage. And that's kind of where I'm at. When you see your students graduate um, and cross the stage, I try to, I try to shout them out, you know, like I said, my social media, um, things of you know things of that sort because um, like th there's a bunch of different types of mentoring and like I said some mentoring is um, you know more hands on and so I try to take like I said take that hand like that hands on approach where you know like you know I, I have students who like I said were on my caseload at my first job and you know I'm giving them advice as they transition from their first big person job to the second big person job. And so, and, and those are the type of relationships, like I look to be, you know, look to build because like, it's going to be fulfilling in the end. And like, you know, whenever you have a student, like before I left St. Xavier, um, you know, I had two students um, who they were like my first caseload. And so um, it was Marvin and Angie. And so we were pretty tight. And so I was able to, to bond with both of them, one because I was their specialist in trio, but uh, Marvin, um, we bonded because he was having some issues 
at home, you know, with his dad. And so we was able, I was able to help talk him through that. Um, Angie, she just came to me a lot. Like she was still working in our office, but fast forward the next year, Marvin's younger sister comes. And so I get placed with her, but off top, she was like, well, my brother talks about you. So she did, she, she didn't have any issues coming into the office. The next year, Angie has two twin sisters that started coming. And so, um, so off top where, like I said, it started with two. Now you have five. And so, you know, these are all students that, you know, indirectly I'm still, you know, connected with because one, I was their specialist, but because their sibling had me, you know, and talked about it, they were able to come and say, I, right, you know, I'll come to James. You know, if I have issues, they were receptive of um, some of the conversation. I think it's, and sometimes having a good, um, you know, reputation among the students can help you know, as professionals, because how do you come off the students in your meetings? Like when I was at, um, before I went to NIU, um, one of my buddies who I went to my high school here with the NIU, he said, hey, when you go to NIU, he said, go to the Center for Black Studies and you need to holler at Mr. Smith, Don Bramlett, Miss Curry. These are all people who, uh, you know, I found within a week of being on campus and um, and the only one I knew prior was Mr. Smith. I met him for the first time as a sophomore in high school. But I went to his office the first day of class. And, you know, I just told him who I was and where I was coming from. He was just like, he's like, all right. He's like, you know, come around. And from that, you meet other people. Like, I met Miss Curry. And she was like, you know, just just come up here. We're going to see, you know, what's to it. Like, you know, we're going to see what it is to be successful. And I think just from having those interactions, I know, like, you know, as frustrating as it can be sometimes being in higher ed, working during the pandemic, um, some of the politics, um, the 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 fulfillment, like I said, comes from the student, you know, but also I think from having those experience and having those people take the time um, to teach me, to nurture me, um, I feel like I have to do it to, um, you know, I have to do it for, 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 for students that I come into contact with that's willing to allow me in because, you know, I, I believe that it, it's truly a two-way street. It can't be a one-way street. It has to be a two-way street. And if the students want it, then I want it. If they don't want it, then, hey, somebody else will want it um, down the line. Yeah, but it's not only in, in what your work where you give back because you volunteer as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, just fortunate, you know, to just be, um, like say, in spaces that have, have impacted me, like, um, I just attended a virtual fundraiser for um, the nonprofit that I was in in high school. And, um, and, and, and right before COVID ended, like I kind of talked about this yesterday because we did some breakout rooms. I was like, hey, you know, like I said, I'm not saying I have a lot of money, but I give when I can. I said, but I know if anything I can do, I can give my time, you know. And so I try to, you know, give my time when I can. And right before COVID happened, I think the weekend before they shut down Chicago, you know, I was with this nonprofit volunteering, taking students out, campaigning for the presidential election. And so um, just to be in those spaces and, you know, leveraging my experience as well, right, where sometimes I'm sought out because, you know, I am a black male from like that inner city. I survived, um, you know, like, you know, encounters like, with gang, you know, gangs where I could have went the gang route, but I chose school and also having a master's degree where some people were like, 
Well, if we're talking about mentoring people for real, we can't talk about mentoring and not have you in a room because I think also too, mentoring has unofficially become a part of my identity. And so um, I'm excited when I talk to people and people say, well, I, we, was, we was talking about mentoring and I was like, how are we going to talk about mentoring and not have James in the room? Like, you know, and so to me, that's a, a, a good feeling because like I've been around it so long and like now I just pride myself on it, right? Where in grad school, I thought it was cheating for me to write papers on mentoring. Like, you know, and then I had a teacher said, no, James, it's not cheating. Write the paper on mentoring. And I was like, damn, okay, let's, let's do it. And so it just made it, you know, it made it that much more fulfilling, you know, for me to to be able to do it. And then now, like, on top of having the experience, I can put the academia part to it because I know some of the terminology. I know how these things go hand in hand. And so um, I think, you know, if you ask, like, some of my mentors, you know, they'll say, like, hey, you know, you have, I don't want to say graduated because I feel like, you know, but I've met all their benchmarks where it's like, you know, hey, you're no longer like when I went to grad school, they said, we can't look at you how we looked at you when you were an undergrad. Like you're you you one of my colleagues now, like, and I can't do nothing but respect that. But if they're excited because they help, you know, play a part in that in that development and that growth. Yeah, isn't it amazing though, like people that you still connect with that when you first started and how that relationship has grown, you know, to where <laughs> it was a student uh-huh. advisee and then becoming colleagues and then friends and then in a sense, in a way uh-huh. now family. So that, that's always uh-huh. fascinating. And in your email signature, you have the quote every time it says, everything you need to accomplish your goals is already in you. So talk to us about that quote, why you chose that. Yeah, so that quote, you know, I don't want to say it's like short and simple, but, you know, I think sometimes we just get caught up with a lot of extreme pressures or that we need other people. And and I'm not saying we don't need people, but I think if you truly want to accomplish something, you know, it comes from, you know, inside. And so if you want to make something happen, you know, like it's to give an example, right? Um, As much as advice you can get from somebody as much resource you can get somebody, it's still upon you to make it happen. So whatever it is from the inside, you got to take that first step. And so if that's going to the gym, you know, I got to be open to doing that, you know, and I can, you know, comfortably say we're like, you know, that was a, you know, an area where, you know, I was struggling with, right. You know, where, um, you know, I hadn't been in the gym and so, um, yes, my line brother's like, hey, bro, we need to get you in the gym, like, you know, the healthy lifestyle. And I'm like, I'm like, OK, you know, and so I went, but he's in Kansas City, you know, I'm in Chicago, so he can't go to the gym with me. You know, I got to pull, you know, I got to push whatever limits inside of me um, to make it happen. And, you know, I tell people like, you know, I'm not saying I'm trying to, um, you know, drop a significant weight, but I want to get more active and like. Like now, you know, like over the past, like, you know, like month, right, where my body has done like a complete reprogram, right, where I think before I was like, I go to bed about midnight, you know, after, and now I'm asleep at 1030, I'm up at like 6, 615, and then it's like, and I'm not one of those people, I don't go to the gym every day, I try to go like three times a week, that's enough for me, and, um, but like, 
you know, my, my body wakes up and I'm like, oh, it's 6 15? I'm going to go to the gym. And so, but it just took for me to get to that point where I'm like, all right, I see this as a, um, as something I need to, I need to do. And so, but I think that starts within yourself because people can tell you to do something or suggest you do it, but you got to take the first step. James, I think there are going to be plenty of listeners who will hear you speak about, you know, mentorship, motivation, about your your work, about the, the podcast, and who might really want to get in touch with you, hear a little bit more from you. How, how, can, be, how can our listeners go about doing that? Yeah, so um, they can um, LinkedIn, um, James Alfred, um, A-L-F-O-R-D. Um, I work at Columbia College as a Columbia College Chicago as an academic advisor um, on Instagram and uh, Facebook. You can look up um, the 79th Street underscore podcast and um, you'll see a nice like um, blue, blue and black logo that says 79th Street talks about financial literacy, um, entrepreneurship um, and I think money as well um, and, and some of the buildings. And um, I think those are like the best ways. Like I'm on social media a lot, but definitely, uh, definitely connect with me. Like I said, I'm always um, looking forward to connecting with people. Uh, any podcast, you know, um, ideas. Um, I'm all I'm always game, and you know, I'm even, you know, probably more excited, you know, like to maybe branch out to some students from uh, some other schools to get. Um, you know, some more perspective. And I know um, being in this role, we have um, we have the means to make it happen because, you know, we're connected in this virtual you know space, but we all may have students that we're close with. We say, hey, you need to do this podcast or, you know, I want to introduce you to somebody because I think you'll be a good fit. But I'm just always like saying, you know, game, uh, you know, to, to make it happen. But I think those are the, the best ways, like LinkedIn, Instagram or Facebook, 79th Street Podcast, like, um, because, you know, I, I think we all have, have, have a role to play. And I think together we all can um, we all can can make it happen. That's right. We are in this together. We'll make it happen together. We can learn from one another and share our stories, share our experiences. So definitely check out James' podcast, 79th Street Podcast. Catch those previous episodes and look forward to season three. James, thank you so much for being on our podcast. No problem. Thank you. I, I I really do appreciate it. And I don't know um, how you all typically recruit people. I know I reached out, you know, um, but one of my, one of my colleagues was like, "Hey, you know, JJ was on this podcast. I think you'll be a a great fit, and you should reach out to him." And so, you know, I just reached out, uh, you know, just to just to see it, uh, you know. So, but I do appreciate um, you both for having me. Um, on as well yeah you reached out on instagram just to say hi and then hey <laughs> join us on our podcast <laughs> and here we are we really appreciate it james thank you so much yeah, no problem i always enjoy hearing about study abroad experiences so thanks to james for sharing his story about his time in beijing and also speaking about the importance of mentorship Yes, James, a lot of great stories that I think will resonate with listeners. And before we end, let's get to our last Sharing Stories t-shirt giveaway. So who's going to be our last lucky winner? And that will be... 
Hey, Banks Blair, congrats. You and our third Sharing Stories Adventures and Advising podcast t-shirt. We will be in contact with you. Congrats to all of our winners. And also thanks so much to our guests today, Karen Sullivan Vance, Miguel Jaramillo, and James Alford. That's it from us. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast as well as follow us on social media, our new YouTube channel, Adventures in Advising, and also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Advising Podcast. Take care, and as always, keep advising. Don't want